everyone. Hi, hello. It is me, Allison Rosen. Welcome to another episode of Allison Rosen is Your New Best Friend. I am sitting here with Denny Tedesco, producer and more of the film The Wrecking Crew. Um, wow. So we will get into all of that and we'll talk about other stuff as well. But first, Denny, how are you feeling? I know it was a rush for you to get it over here. It was a rush. It was a rush. I, I got across town very quickly, <laughs> as fast as I could go. Good. All right. So The Wrecking Crew um, is a documentary yeah. about the, the session players, The Wrecking Crew. And your dad, Tommy Tedesco, is world-famous guitar player. And as it pointed out in the film, if people don't you know, know him by name, they've certainly heard something yeah, he's played. exactly. Dad was a session player. He came from Niagara Falls, New York in the early 50s, moved to L.A. and broke into the studio scene. And um, yeah, you could hear him on those themes like Batman and uh, Bonanza, Green Acres, but he also did a lot of rock and roll. Mm-hmm. What was that like growing up with him as your dad? Um, well, he was just dad. I mean, it's funny. Someone asked me that earlier. It's like, it must have been really cool having a musician as a dad. I said, uh, yes and no. I mean, if you were messing around, he knew you were messing around. <laughs> he didn't like he didn't like any pot or any of that stuff. It's like he was like so straight. But God help, if you got caught with it, you were in trouble. What so, would have happened? Oh, it's like he'd make fun of you. you know? <laughs> <laughs> Just like, what are you doing? No, it was it was cool, Dad. But Dad was, you know, Dad was like went to work like any other dad. Well, the, but see, do you think that's specific to session players versus like the rock Somewhat. stars? That's a good point. Session players at the time was um, they had, you know, in the early '60s, especially when they had uh, they had to go into the the recordings and they had to be on time you had to get in you had to get out you had three hours you had to nail three or four songs and move on to another session and these guys were so busy that mm-hmm. you didn't have time to mess around um you know some sessions then later as, as earl palmer the great drummer said they weren't recording dates they were recording projects and you'll talk to you know some of the guys the engineers said yeah we'd go weeks you know with a certain group and it was like you know some of it's torture but I mean, it was just a long time. You, you'd be months on it, one project. You know, then it's a little looser, you know. Mm-hmm. But uh, session players, it is a different animal. You know, and talking to many of them, you, you know, especially if you get in film and TV, then it's a whole nother vibe. You know, then you've got click tracks, you've got 80-piece orchestras, and you've got lots of money involved. Right. So you're pretty uh, together. So for someone who doesn't know who the Wrecking Crew are, or who maybe has heard the name but is unfamiliar, can you yeah. sort of f- fill us in? Yeah, well, the Wrecking Crew is kind of like, it was a nickname that was given supposedly many years later by Re- uh, Hal Blaine, the great, wonderful uh, rock and roll drummer, session drummer. And the, supposedly in the early 60s, when these guys are breaking into LA, meaning the Wrecking Crew, they were just session players. It wasn't a group, but they would be called the Wrecking Crew because supposedly the older guy said, these guys are going to wreck the business playing rock and roll. <laughs> And oh, meant, I didn't realize yeah, that. Yeah, yeah. So it was it was a derogatory comment. See, the older guys, they didn't want to do a lot of these dates. There were a lot of reasons. One, they could have been um, a non-union dates or they were called demos. You know, you go and do a demo for someone. Well, that was illegal 
for uh, union guys, but these guys would take a chance. Mm-hmm. And some of the once those demos became hits, these, these guys are already they're now they're entrenched. Now they're doing the Phil Spector stuff, the Brian Wilson stuff, Jan and Dean. So these guys that broke into the rock and roll session thing, they're doing it like literally for years. They're Jan and Dean, Mamas and Papas, Fit Dimension, Johnny Rivers, uh, Sam Cooke. Anything that was done in L.A., these guys had a piece of it. It was like 15, 20, 25. Right. There's a part of the movie where where different people are estimating how many of them Yeah, there because are. it wasn't. it's really not a um, – if you look at someone's date books, you know, like my dad's date books, he's doing three or four sessions a day. It doesn't mean you're playing with the same guys because different producers hire different people. Mm-hmm. So it wasn't like maybe um, Muscle Shoals had the same guys pretty much and, and the Funk Brothers, there was the same group of guys, one studio there. Where here you had, you know, five, six, ten studios. You could be, you know, a gold star at Santa Monica and Vine, and then you'd be at Capitol Records three hours later. So it was kind of like it was a factory here. And I, I don't mean that in a derogatory comment. I mean that as, you know, hey, sometimes, you know, you build a Rolls Royce and the next day you build a Pinto. You know, it was, you know, it's like... Who was the Pinto? Oh, there were lots. <laughs> there were a lot of Pintos, a lot of, lot of bombs, as my father called them. That's what he said. He said, listen, he, I made hundreds of hits, but I made thousands of bombs. So... Um, Would he come home and be like, I was working on this today, no, and man, that sucked? <laughs> no. And actually, it's funny because it's someone asked me that recently, and it's like, he never brought it home because, A, he worked 12, 14 hours a day, whatever it was. When you know, sometimes there's one session, sometimes there's four sessions. It could be eight in the morning till he could do a maybe a midnight session. You know, someone like Bobby Darren would call and say, "Let's do something late." Or Brian Wilson, he was known for just doing late at night. But he never brought work home. He never played the guitar at home because he didn't need to practice. Mm -hmm. The guitars were in his car at all times, like literally like a fireman. I mean, he was like out the door, done. You know. (laughs) But it was well, like that's. I feel like in this day and age, you cannot leave guitars in a I car. I know that's so weird because I I know that's freaking a lot of guitar players out listening to this, especially in L.A. thinking the heat. But he never, you know, this is before Cartage. Cartage nowadays, well, for certain the movies, they would bring you big cards, crates, and stuff. But in those days, he had his amp, Telecaster, a twelve-string classical guitar. Uh, banjo, mandolin, whatever, all that, basically, you had your basic tools. What kind of amp for my gearhead listeners? Your gearhead listeners? I have no idea. Okay. I I, I could lie. (laughs) I I think there were tubes in it. (laughs) I'm pretty sure there (laughs) There were. There were tubes in it, yeah. Um, Probably a a Fender, I think it was. Yeah. But but it was weird when you said that because I know um, he was in and out so much that he didn't have time to take the – guitars and if it's at nighttime well they're fine they're cool mm-hmm. you know the only time it was a bummer when he got the car ripped off you know oh it was like it you know somewhere on sunset but i remember that day but it was late 60s but i don't that other than that i never saw him play guitar until the 75 76 when he did his own jazz albums mm-hmm. and then he started playing at home doing things having guys come over and play it wasn't like a hoot nanny at home you know that not even a little bit no <laughs> Not even. Not even a hootenino. No, it's a no. tiny hootenanny. <laughs> <It's> exactly. <laughs> um, there's a part in the movie where you are look. You know, I, I think it was the part where you're looking at his date books and you have this realization. So 
for people who are just yeah. catching up now, you're in the, you know, you, you narrate at times. Yeah. And, um, you realize, oh, maybe I, he wasn't around as much as I thought he was. Did yeah. you used to think he was around a lot? Yeah, you must. I, but you know what? I didn't know any different mm-hmm. because that's, you know, my older brother who's 10 years older than me would have known the difference because he's born in 51. I'm born in 61. When I'm around, dad's working all the time. So there was no transition of me seeing dad slowly, you know, so dad was always constantly working. Mom was always taking care of us and dad come home. We had, you know, we had dinner, we had dinner, we spent time together, but it wasn't like um, a loss. Mm-hmm. You know, I didn't feel that loss. And that says a lot for both of them. So did you grow up in LA? Yeah. I grew up in the Valley. In okay. Northridge. Yeah. Let's get into your story a bit. And then I have all sorts of questions about the making yeah. of the movie. So you grew up in Northridge. Grew up in Northridge. You yeah. and your brother, other siblings? I, I have an older brother that's 10 years older than me, Dale. And then a younger brother that's Damon. He's the baby. He's, uh, was he seven years younger than me? So he's fit 44. Mm-hmm. No, no, that's wrong. I'll give him age. 48. <laughs> I don't know, whatever he is. I can't add. And, um, and then I have a older, a younger sister that's a teacher, two years younger. So none of my older brother was a publisher. My younger brother is a sound engineer. He mixes orchestras. And like I said, my sister's a teacher. Mm-hmm. And you're a producer. Producer, writer. director, craft service, anything that you'll hire me for. <laughs> Did you guys all play though? Um, we all took lessons of some kind. My older brother played a little piano in high school. My older, my younger brother played a little sax. Um, I didn't, I played, I didn't play anything long enough to get a song down. I played piano, saxophone, uh, what else? Uh, accordion. <laughs> I quit and piano and guitar. I quit everything. You know, it was when the last thing I wanted to do was play accordion. That was on my own as an adult. I thought, Actually, it was around when I met Dana. I said, I'm going to learn how to play accordion so I could surprise my mom. So I stole her accordion, <laughs> you know, that she had around since she was a kid and started trying to learn a tarantella. I only needed was a few, just something. Mm-hmm. And I took a lesson from this old lady in uh, LA and she had this museum for accordions. And I was like, oh, this is scary, this lady. <laughs> and I love, listen, I respect accordion. There are some fine accordion players, but she made me so nervous. I started rushing and she says, okay, start playing, you know, start, you know, reading music. I started, and she started tapping my arm when she realized I was rushing. No, listen to me. (laughs) What? And two. And and I said, I don't need to do this. I'm an adult. I can quit on my own. (laughs) Yeah. Cause she probably teaches kids mostly, right? With her, with that approach. Yeah. And then, you know, it felt like it was the whiplash of accordion. (laughs) You know, now I look back, it's like, oh my God, she hit me. You could have been a great accordion player. I could have been. I know. And then saxophone, I took saxophone. I was at Notre Dame High School and it was in the seventies, all boys. And this brother, one of the brothers said, uh, you know, he was like old and he made us learn on, you know, the manual typewriters. And if you looked at the keys, he'd smack your hands, you know, with a ruler. So after six months, I figured I can type. And I got out of typing with the idea of, can I join band? My dad's a musician. <laughs> he said, and they said, all right. So they gave me the saxophone and I carried the banner in the marching band. I didn't even play with the band. I never got, <laughs> so I suck. <laughs> <laughs> and then did you go to college? Went to Loyola Marymount for filmmaking. Mm-hmm. What? Then- Oh, go ahead. No, no, I wanted to write. That was what I was hoping to do. And, you know, I realized years after coming out of college, I wasn't a writer. Mm-hmm. You know, um, I wrote a few scripts. One got, you know, op- optioned. and But a, a writer writes every day. 
you guys are writers. You write every day. You're comedians. You write it. Whatever you're doing that times, musicians play every day. That's how you make it. You know, and I was not there. Mm -hmm. And I think that's why this film might have taken me 19 years, but I was not going to quit. So, <laughs> so that's why. Okay. Well, so let's then talk about it taking 19 years. You know, as I was watching it, I was blown away just by how many people you got to sit down with an interview and, and who those people were. I mean, right. you interviewed Dick Clark, Cher, uh, yeah. Nancy um, Sinatra, Brian yeah. Wilson, Herb Alpert. Roger McGuinn, and I kept going even after the film's been cut. I mean, I kept going. I mean, right now, I rushed over here. I was cutting outtakes. I have to turn in tomorrow. So I kept on going. For so, what? What is this for? For the DVD. Okay. I just didn't want to quit. I have a 12-step program. My friend said, you got to stop interviewing people. <laughs> How many people did you interview? Do you About know? About 78. Wow. The last one I did was literally last Friday. I did Michael Nesmith. Wow. And that was, I tried for years. He's okay. okay. Tried for years trying to get him and turned me down a few times. And then I thought, you know, this is it. Last time I'm going up to San Francisco. Give it a shot. He said, yes. Uh, okay. Well, I'll fit him in somewhere in an outtake. Well, this is fascinating because I, I saw the DVD or so I thought, but you're still interviewing people for well, it. Well, you saw the film. Okay. So the, I saw the film on a yeah, DVD. Yeah. Right. So I'm doing the basically, I'm doing the outtakes that I wanted to do the second DVD of outtakes. Gotcha. When my editors said to me in 2006, when we started cutting, you know, 10 years after we started, she said, you got to stop interviewing people because you can't fall in love with anybody if you got everybody in there. And I totally get it. And I said, I understand, but that's why God gave us DVDs because <laughs> I'm not giving. And I didn't know who was going to give me something like, oh my God moment, you know, and I did. I got the oh my god moment with uh, Leon Russell after I had the film cut, and I went back in, you know, last year and fit Leon in. Mm. You know, Leon was a big part of it for me. So, which is I'm I'm blanking. Which is the oh my god moment? Leon Russell. Oh, having having him. him in there because he wasn't in there for until like I said last year. You know, the film was cut in 2008 for festivals, and it wasn't. You know, and he kept turning me down. Everybody, you know. It's now it's easier. Now they don't turn you down, but it's too late now. <laughs> I'm done. So, but no, Leon was great. I mean, it's that moment of, you know, getting someone that's so honest. Mm -hmm. You know, that's what I love the most about Leon's interview. Um, yeah. So, how did you get all those other people? Well, I mean, they, we started in '96. Dad was diagnosed with terminal cancer, so I they gave him a year. What and kind of cancer? Lung cancer. Mm -hmm. So if you look in the next time someone watches the film, you watch any photographs of my father, there's always oh, a cigarette in his hand. And I mean, he had a bad, he, like he didn't do the other drugs, but he did cigarettes, mm -hmm. coffee, pasta, and he ate gambling. <laughs> and if he could do all four at once, he would. You know, he was good at it. <laughs> but the cigarettes, he had a horrible reputation. I mean, as a musician, a horrible reputation of being a smoker. <laughs> so he... um that killed him in the, you know, you know, but 96, he, uh, did you he, ever try to get him to quit? Oh yeah. We all, yeah, yeah. Mm -hmm. That's funny. Cause even when he passed on, we always felt like, even though he died young, you look at his age at 67, always felt like we were so lucky to have him that long. Mm -hmm. Yeah. You know, Cause you fight all your life as a kid trying to have him stop smoking. Then he quit at 50 and then, you know, he's always heavy and then he got up to 300 pounds and then had a stroke at 62, you know, so you always felt like you were 
buying time. Right. So he kind of always felt like, okay, and especially when you're younger. Yeah. But, um, yeah, so we did that and we started this, when he got diagnosed, we started filming at a round table. Um, I based it on Broadway, Danny Rose, which was one of my favorite movies. Now, had you thought of doing this documentary before? I, yes, there was a moment and we had done a friend of mine in uh, college. We had done a piece, piece of, uh, kind of something like of uh, my dad. Mm -hmm. And that's where that footage of his seminar stuff comes in as well as the Zappa interview. And, uh, that's from 1981. So, um, yeah, so I kind of, but it was going to be about these guys called the Wrecking Crew. That was mm -hmm. basically it. So that round table, I put Hal Blaine, the great drummer, on there. Um, my dad, Carol Kay, the only woman and bass player there. And, I loved her parts of it. Yeah, she's amazing. Yeah, and then um, and Plaz Johnson, the sax man, and we just, I just basically wanted to be a voyeur mm -hmm. and you know, and let them talk. And I thought about it the other day. I never saw my dad work as a club or not a club as a group in musicians. And, but I always saw him talk, you know, they could sit around and talk forever. These guys, you know, that it's like a rhythm. It's like comedians. You know, when you, you group with them to get together, it's what it's like. Um, so I thought that's, that would be, that's why I based on Broadway, Danny Rose and we kept going. And then, uh, dad died in uh 97 98 cut a 14 minute piece mm -hmm. i had dick clark in it i had Cher in it and nancy sinatra that's all in don randy that's all i had and i just started going and no one would ever help and they kept saying it's impossible you'll never get this done and the reasoning was if you spend this much money on the music which it will cost you a lot of money you'll never get your money back meaning like no matter what a distributor is not going to pick it up well, I just kept going, going, and over the ten years, we, you know, you work on it, you pull back. But I think that thing of um, looking back now, you know, you think back, oh, you know, that thing of that lingering thing of the things I quit, you know, those all those things, mm -hmm. including writing. I think that haunted me. Mm, interesting. And do I need to pay for money? Do I have to for therapy right now? <laughs> <laughs> Am I going to have to pay for this? I will give you a bill. At the okay, end, yeah. good. Um, but I really do. I really know that's true now. Looking back, that was the only thing that kept me going was I am not going to quit. What other things had you quit? Or well, did, the did writing. You feel like you had quit? Uh -huh. you, know, you know, the writing. It just wasn't consistent. You know, instruments. Mm -hmm. You know, no one ever gave me a hard time. It was just myself. Right. Know, you know, and then, you know, you just, you just didn't find anything that you wanted to stay with. And I felt like I have to do this. I have to keep going. So in 2006, when we had all these interviews, you know, I kept going around and finally get someone to get to someone. And, you know, they go, oh, this is, yeah, all right, I'll do an interview. 2006, Susie, my wife, said, you know, was concerned we just made the most expensive home movie. We had nothing to show for it. We had all this footage. Did you begin to feel like the people around you were like, yeah, yeah. Oh, like, absolutely. This is going to come out, sure. <laughs> Oh my God! Absolutely, especially last couple of years. No, I, I mean, you're the first person to ask that, and I, yeah, <laughs> I know that you know friends, family, and you know, you know, and it was possible. Mm -hmm. You know, until we cut the film, there was those points of time. All right, now you cut the film. All right, now you see it. Now we get into film festivals. Okay, now it's done really well in film festivals. Two thousand eight. You know, we've basically licensed the music for our what do you call it um 
you know, festival years. Mm -hmm. But we still had that back end bill that we're going to have to deal with. So I think that kept people going. And I remember one of the guys, a great, you know, one of the documentary makers said, man, you did it. Congratulations. I didn't do it as far as I was concerned. It's all right. I got awards. and I got the film out. But I felt like, no, I'm not done. And at this point in 2010, when we got to two years into this festival of time, I was still nowhere. No one's coming to help. And because, again, same problem. You're not going to make money on a music doc. No, when you say coming to help, do you mean no one? I wanted an dis- angel, a distribution, or right. someone to oversee like the it. industry. Like, to- you know, I was hoping Martin Scorsese would come. Uh-huh. You know, if Marty listens, I'm still waiting, Marty. But no. If Marty listens, hi, hi. thanks for listening. <laughs> would you like to? What yeah, are you doing next tweet week? Tweet us. <laughs> tweet us, Marty. Come, come be a guest. <laughs> <laughs> but I just kept, you know, and that was the thing is like, well, who do you know? What do you do? And. And we still needed to raise over half a million dollars. We knew that. For the For the music, music. rights, mm-hmm. for, uh, you know, the stock footage rights, for these rights. You know, there's a lot of stuff. I mean, the film's done in a sense, but you still got to go back to a 5-1 mix. Now, the music was already in the film, though, right? Yeah, so but that... I paid for that use, though. For the meaning I paid for the festival use. Right, right. But I mean, that must feel almost like, or, or rather, did it feel almost like someone's holding your music, your your movie hostage because it's all in there ready to go, but you can't release it. Well, it, you know, what's weird, it wasn't, you know, no one was holding a hostage in a sense that, you know, someone, they try, even the Wall Street Journal, tried, there was an um, article and they were really twisting it, trying to make it like me against them. And I said, You against me, the labels and publishers. I just oh. said, First of all, do not go that route, please. I'm not even close to being done on this negotiation <laughs> thing. And I do not need that. And it wasn't true, though. Because what the rates they were giving me were phenomenal. Now, I, they don't want me telling you what they were, but they were phenomenal rates. But I had 110 songs in it. And everybody's on the same rate. No matter if you know the song or not, mm-hmm. everybody's on the same. And that's what kept it going. You know, it was just that amount of music. You know, and then the musicians union. I wanted, you got to pay the musicians union for crosses over. And that was the one bill I wanted to pay from day one. You know, let the musicians get paid. So we had to figure out a, a price from them. Mm-hmm. But it wasn't, I wasn't held hostage. It was just a reality. There's music. As my dad said, there's music and there's the music business. Mm-hmm. Sometimes they mix. <laughs> there's film and there's the film business. Sometimes it mixes. My problem was, mine was, you know, there was an article in 2009 in Variety, and they were talking about the struggles of music docs and the struggles of you know the directors and music directors. And they were talking about Martin Scorsese struggling with the Stones doc. There was another one with uh, Demi struggling with the Neil Young doc, and Denny T- director Denny Tedesco with the Wrecking Crew doc. I went, oh my god, they call me director. I'm on the same page. Let's circle those names. <laughs> and you know, struggling documentary makers. So. But, you know, in the end, it worked out better. Mm-hmm. So 2010, we started getting donations. That's the only way to do it. Was Did you go on to Kickstarter for that? Later we did. In the, pro, the what I tried to do in 2010, I was coming up with ideas. Right, how do we raise money? And I said, well, if we do the DVD, if we have the sections we want, the best of the guitar players, the best of the bass players, best of all these, you know, producers, engineers, let's see if I can get you know, Fender to help out or Ludwig to help out. You know, I thought, you know, t- you guys put in $20,000. It's an ad in a magazine. You're going to have the DVD the rest of, you know, forever. But I couldn't get any of those companies to help. What you was know? their response? 
they don't they don't have budgets. Mm. You know, Ludwig was the worst. Um, what? Who's Hal Blaine? What? Oh my <laughs> God! That was a wow. young. Guy. It wasn't anybody high up in Ludwig, but it was still bad enough to. But for still, a really that's and that was kind of one of the things that drove me crazy. These are the companies that were made famous by these musicians. You know, these guys played these instruments, and it was like the. I hate when companies and, and they don't look back at their history. Right. It's always about the new stuff. It's like, that's fine. But grasp what you've done in the past. Don't let it go. You know, embrace it, you know, and use it. Was that part of why you wanted to do the movie? Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. I think also because my dad had the stroke mm-hmm. at 62 and at just before the stroke, he was playing his ass off as a guitar player. He was phenomenal. Um, he was, but he was only getting calls for those jobs that were like, you need Tommy, mm-hmm. you know, which is great. He loved that where, you know, John Williams says, hold the two weeks in September off because we got this movie with Spielberg and it's all guitar or something like that. You know what I mean? That was, yeah, okay. Or Horn, James Horner did that for him all the time. That's when you know you made it. But, or Mandolin on, let's say Godfather 3 or something like that. But he was playing so well, but they don't get calls at that point. So Watching these guys in their 60s creatively can't touch him, but you know, was moved on and he was fine with it, he was totally cool with it. I think it was his sons that had the problem with it. So, me and my brother and I, so um, where was I? I forgot, I scrambled you. Um, I think I was saying, is that part of why you made the oh, movie? right, just right, to right. sort of recap, to, yeah, yeah, so people don't lose the yeah, memory. Yeah, absolutely, and and I'm so fortunate. There's a line in the in the movie where the guys, Hal Blaine says, we were at the right place at the right time when they were doing their music in the early '60s and '70s. Um, my thing was, I was at the right place at the right time. I realized because I got these. I was a son of Tommy, so I was able to get to the guys. I had a different perspective than other people, and as well as I got them at the right time. They were in their 60s. You know, if I had to do it now, it'd be very, very difficult, even if they were many of them live. Mm-hmm. But they're not, you know, so it's, you know, it's like interviewing someone in later years is hard. So you started the movie in 1996. Yeah. Is that right? And your dad was diagnosed when? 96. Literally jumped into Okay. It. And then. What Nin- he died in 97. Oh, so he was given a year and he really only had a year. He gave, a, I think, got a year and a half out of it. Uh-huh. So he died in 97 in November. And then 98 in January went into cutting, right into cutting a piece. Um, what was the relationship between making the film and your grief? It, um, never grieved. I, I mean, I grieved when he was passing. Mm-hmm. But what's interesting is... Um, he never left. It was a weird thing. I never thought, um, I thought that would have been difficult and that's come up a few times in questions and that's never been the case. Mm -hmm. Probably because I live with his footage and I don't mean just this, these interviews. I've lived with his seminars. I've lived with so much of his shtick, you know, over the years I knew his stuff. It never left me. So, you know, that was the interesting thing about it. But do you, I guess I'm wondering. If anything, it was very um, healing. That's what I was going to say. It was very healing because you got to, yeah, to remember him a lot. Yeah, and it was interesting. Also, um, 
when we you saw the film when we've cut um about 30 minutes first cut was 30 minutes of something and a friend of ours grady cooper said to uh claire and i the editor she said why are you guys cutting it like this i said what do you mean he says you're cutting this film like any of us editors can cut it he says but you guys you have something that we can't touch you have insight you have a reason to make this film why are you making it he kept harassing me i said well i'm gonna tell the story about my dad exactly tell the story he said become part of it and what he and i was trying to pull back on that Mm -hmm. because unfortunately i think my ego is getting to me the other way and you know you would think oh it's egotistical to put yourself in it it was just the opposite for me because i want to be the director (laughs) you know with the accent and the you know quotation around it uh-huh. because I wanted people I mean, the to go the scarf and the bullhorn was a little much but. <laughs> exactly well you know um, yeah they don't like me for that um, but it was one of those things I, I wanted to be the son that directed it not the do you know what I mean I, I wanted yeah, people to find out later you don't want to be like telling your story right And and, and but I understood what he's saying and, and once we started playing around with it the voiceover at the beginning and then it was a problem was, okay, was well, it the story about your father during the test? Is it the story about your father or the story of the wrecking crew? And it was going back and forth mm-hmm. with these notes. And finally, it was a friend who said, um, why don't you just say it's the story of my father and his extended family, the wrecking crew? <laughs> and I said, oh, yeah, that worked. And they did. Never got the note again. And what it did for us to allowed us to, for editing, when I never ever needed a light moment, go to dad because mm-hmm. dad was the lightest you know he you know those we cut some of his seminar footage into it that were always funny and um that's how it worked i think one of the most exhilarating parts of it for me was whenever a musician on screen would play like the baseline right. from the, these boots are made for walking right. or something like that where all of a sudden you, you didn't know what feel it was. the pieces coming together that and, was very exciting and that came actually it's funny because grady said the same with the, my friend he said he more of that because Carol is the only one that Carol the K when I did her interview, she's the only one that had an instrument in, in front of her. Right. You know, you don't have a drummer's not going to do that. And I went, all right. So then when I went, I decided, all right, how do I do this with a drummer? You know, how do you show this? I thought, well, let's just put him in the studio, put headphones on him, play back. I played to Hal Blaine, you know, like 12 songs he did from Beach Boys, you know, to be my baby with the Ronettes, everything. And, um, and that's how we did it. So we kind of like let them play along. We don't know as an audience what's going on. And then all of a sudden we start leaking in the the other track. And it was fun doing that because then it's like then you go, okay, well, what do I do with boots? We're made for walking. Well, if you know the first line, doom, 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 you know, instantly mm-hmm. I said, well, we can't do it there. We don't want to give the other way. So we started in the middle of it, of the song, you know, and then brought it back in. And I didn't realize that a man originally performed that song. I thought well, that was well, Lee really... Hazelwood, who wrote yeah. the song, was her producer. He had wrote it for himself, and mm-hmm. you know that's and she says, and we've heard, I've heard it. it. It sounds so weird. Well, that's it was a really interesting point she made, which is uh, Nancy she, Sinatra says yeah. that she said to him, "It's too harsh and abusive if yeah. a man performs this, but it's perfect for a woman." Yeah, it's so interesting. I guess it'd be like what, like a real tough guy song. Yeah, like like. It's peanuts now. <laughs> There's nothing you know, soft compared to what was out there now. Right. How but, did you get Cher? Oh, Cher was interesting. Cher was um, in the 80s. I was doing a, a, a rock video. Matt Mahern was this wonderful director I was working with in those days. 
And he did this video with Cher. It actually got banned by MTV. <laughs> it was the giant vagina on the set that was not working. Um, so we got banned. Are we... Was there really a giant vagina? Yeah, it the... was a metal piece of art. Oh. But it was okay. <laughs> this you know, video was amazing. But so we got banned. But I met Cher on that set. And when I was talking to, you know, I was standing there, Cher, and Cher is very serious and mm-hmm. very, you know, she's business, all business when she's working. And I was intimidated. I said, hi, Cher, I'm, you know, I'm a grip at this point. I'm just lighting. I said, my dad used to work with you. Who's your dad? Like, you know, <laughs> Tommy Tedesco. And all of a sudden her eyes and her smile came across and mm-hmm. I went, oh my gosh. She goes, Tommy and Hal and Billy Pittman. She's, you know, all of a sudden you realize Cher was 16, 17 when she's working with these guys. And I could see, I got goosebumps telling this story mm-hmm. now. And I realized how much it meant to her. And I realized interviewing all these people, when you're talking about something like that, that period of time meant a lot to them. They're not, it's the best time in their lives when mm-hmm. it's happening. So I knew Cher had this heart for it. So when I, when the time came, I knew Cher's agent you know, socially somewhat. And I said, you know, do you mind asking Cher if she would do it? And I, I know she did it out of courtesy for me, meaning like she asked. And I know in the in my heart that the agent thought, there's no way she's going to say yes. <laughs> do you know what I mean? And, and she, how much later was it then? Um, what was the time period? Immediately. No, but I mean in between when you met her on the set and when you oh, asked good to call. interview That's, her. Uh, oh, God, almost 10 years. Oh, okay. You know, whether or not she remembered meeting me, I don't know. Right. But, um, but she, when she asked, and she and she called back. She says, "Cher said yes." <laughs> you know, I could see it was like, "Ooh, that's not that's good." Yeah. You know, so if, and I always tell people if you can get past the gatekeepers, you go. You know, get past the gatekeeper, you might have a chance. The only ones that turned me down, and I don't know if I'm sure. I'm hoping that it was the gatekeepers mm-hmm. um, that turned me down was uh, Tom Petty's people. I asked them, and I asked Bonnie Raitt's people, and I asked Max Weinberg's people. These are all people that talked highly of these musicians. Mm-hmm. Now, looking back, I am so glad they turned me down. Because <laughs> you had more than you needed? Well, more, but also it would have taken a different way. Yeah. Then it would have been the usual documentary. You could find someone that's current. Hey, let's talk about how they influenced us. Da, 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 be, you know. And I'm glad I didn't do it that way. Right. And how'd you get Dick Clark? Dick Clark. And when when is the Dick Clark footage from? Right after Dad passed. Okay. Because Dick Clark did an obituary on uh, my father, I guess, on the radio. And someone, a radio guy, sent it to me. It was really sweet and stuff like that. And I sent Dick a, a, what do you call it, a thank you note. You know, saying thank you so much for the wonderful obituary on the radio. And I said, by the way, here's a 14-minute piece that we're doing, or this blah, blah, blah. I said, would you be interested in being interviewed? And he wrote back, you know, typed letter, you know, I'm, you know, whatever he must have tr- transcribed, and said, <laughs> "I really didn't know any of these gentlemen, and I'm, you know, I really respect him, blah blah blah." So I really wouldn't have much to say. Da da da. That was it. And but on the bottom, he wrote in uh, in pencil or whatever. He wrote, "Give me a call. I just saw the tape you sent over. We'll figure something out. You could talk me through it." So cool. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? So, so he. So he had, like transcribed the letter and, and then, then watched he, he, it. Exactly. <laughs> it's right. Exactly. He, he, he could have just the redone usual. the letter. <laughs> exactly. Just, it's so funny. You're right. I never thought of it like that. It's like, no first, then we'll talk about it. <laughs> 
P.S. Disregard. <laughs> disregard what I just... Type I mean, letter. it was a long letter, too. Yeah, I know. So, you know, and I didn't need Dick to know these guys. I needed Dick as the historian. And I didn't need the historian of today. I need the historian at the time that maybe knew something. You know, it's not my dog, by the way. No, it's mine because there's some sound that just went by. Oh, well. It adds delightful color to the exactly. podcast. And what was Dick Clark like? Dick was cool. Um, he, you know... Had a lot of, and he had some. He had a couple stories, mm-hmm. uh, you know, talking about you know, like uh, because he did. Um, oh, what was his not bandstand? The other one um, like, where he had Paul Revere and the Raiders. You know, was the the house band, and you know, and Hal Blaine and these guys worked with those that group too. So he knew what was going on, you know. So, what kind of music do you listen to? Good question. Um, I kind of like went towards the jazz thing, you know. Um, some fusion, some straight ahead, and then the rock stuff. I'm forced to listen to what my kids listen to, <laughs> which is okay. I mean, when I say forced, I mean it is forced because you know they won't listen to what I want to listen to. What What do they listen to? Um, I'm out of touch it, with whatever the kids. I, are it, it's to. funny. It's not bad. I mean, some of the stuff is not bad. I mean, listen, I like the Taylor Swift album that's out <laughs> right now. So you know, people. That's the other thing that people, you know, especially our age or older, you know, I've seen this film you know, hundreds of times with audiences around the world. And people say to me, oh, they don't make music like they used to, you know, and they, you know, and I respect that. I understand what they're saying, but there is good music out there. There is another Brian Wilson, another John Lennon out there. I just, I just think when we were kids, I'm 54. So in 68, I'm seven. So go back 50 years. There's nothing from 1917. Mm. <laughs> so, you know what I mean? But my kids are listening to this stuff that's withstood time. The, they, the Beach Boys and all the Beatles and all this stuff. And they're listening to all their stuff. Now, we only had a couple stations. They have thousands of ways to listen. They have all kinds of things that take their day away from them. You know, if it's texting or if it's these games or that games. And when we were kids, we'd, you know, go play. we listen to radio or listen to a record and sat down and listened to a record. And so I think it's out there. It's just a matter of finding it. And how many kids do you have? Uh, uh, two. How old are they? Uh, 16 and 10. And they know more music than I do. They know, I'm serious. They really know the stuff. Um, how did you get Brian Wilson? Brian was a tough one because it was always waiting, you know, trying to get past the gatekeeper. And, it was uh, David Leaf was a, another filmmaker who did the Smile documentary, and I think David gave the call to the the gatekeepers and said you should really take a look, and finally got that chance. And what did you find him to be like? You know, it, it's Brian's an amazing person. I've worked with him a couple times in this thing, and then I worked with him recently on a project for the BBC. When you, Brian is, you know, he's. It's a hard interview because you know he's not going to give you much, mm-hmm. you know. And I'm and I don't mean that because of attitude. He's an amazing person. I think Brian just is Brian, and you just know he knows his music, and that's what it's about. And you know, it's a tough. It's you know, and anybody that's interviewed Brian knows, but he's such a giving person. Mm-hmm. You know, there's a great story of. Um, it's funny because I just got the okay for this sloop B John today. Um outtake and the outtake was about billy strange the guitar player brian called him and said 
I need you down here. Can you do this thing on 12 string? And da, da, da. he said, Brian, first of all, he says, he was in the middle of a divorce. He says, I got my kid with me. I can't. He said, just bring him with you. I says, I don't, I don't even own a 12 string right now. And he says, just come. I'll have a 12 string in the amp here. So, okay. So he goes down there, does it, works out. He says, okay, thanks, Brian. He says, hey, you forgot your guitar and your amp. He says, that's my, not mine, Brian. It's yours. You, you brought it in. He said, no, it's yours. Oh. You know what I mean? It's, those are the sweet things. Um, that I think are, you know, special. Mm-hmm. You know, Brian had so much, it's funny, Brian has so much respect for the musicians and they had so much respect for Brian. Um, people, you know, I tell people, I said, um, you know, when the Beach Boys first started, they played their own albums and then they got hooked up with Jan and Dean and real, and, and Phil Spector saw them and saw these studio musicians working all the time and they turned them on to him. And I think that was the best thing for Brian because, you know, there was always that tension in the family. So when he um, started using studio musicians, he didn't have to go on the road, which he hated. He could deal with these guys. So being in the studio, it's one thing dealing with guys you've hired who have respect for you versus family. You know, who's do, do we really need to do that, Brian? You know, I can imagine. I mean, listen, I have that at home. <laughs> you know, I'm doing a podcast right now. I feel special. Go home. They don't want to listen to me. <laughs> You mentioned that you were a grip. So after you got and, out of- And a decorator. I like okay. to say Yeah, I, like I wanted to, to know how- I like to make sure my family knows that. So when I do decorate the house, I, I'm the only one in the family that actually has been paid for it. <laughs> I might have bad taste, but that- Yeah, what was your journey getting into the film industry? I was, well, when I went into- My dad always said, you know, when you take anything. And, you know, I'm not sure if that's always right sometimes, but I did. When I was in college, I had a chance to uh, work on a film called Eating Raul. And it was as a decorator. I didn't even know what a decorator did, but I BS my way through that <laughs> interview. It was paying 200 The lady said, Ann Kimmel was the producer. She goes, well, it's either $200 or 250 We're not sure. And went back, got the job. And she goes, how much do you want? I said, can we get 250 a week? <laughs> she said, yeah. And I went, oh, my God, I'm making $250. Yes. <laughs> you know, and I worked probably, you know, 80 hours a week. It didn't matter. We were having so much fun. But, you know, I wasn't an art director. Mm-hmm. I just did it. Then went into lighting, did rock videos for a long time. I had a stage at Hollywood Vine. What are some of the ones that you worked on that are um, more well-known? The one that we I liked the best was Robbie Neville's uh, C'est La Vie. Mm-hmm. It was done on my uh, at our set or a stage. And then I did uh, Stings, a, lot, a couple Sting things, Chicago things, Billy Idol, um, In Excess. I can't even remember the names. But I mean, they were big videos, but it's, that's why I can't remember lyrics, so I'm mm-hmm. not good at that. <laughs> um, but no, and then I went into uh, IMAX films. I hated gripping after a while. Mm-hmm. And the reason I hated gripping is after a while, it's like, you know, you toss another sandbag, you know, it's just another sandbag. And I wanted to write. Mm-hmm. And I wasn't writing. It was that frustration level. And then I got a chance to do IMAX films as a grip, and I went on the road and did that for about four or five years. And that was, you know, I got to see the world. Was that know, was that fun? Oh, it's awesome. A, you're like maybe there's only three of you sometimes. You, a cameraman, and an AC. So mm-hmm. three of you, you have more responsibility. As an AC, uh, oh, as a camera. camera. Okay. And you, you know, so we were in Africa. We went to, uh, to you know, all the way into Alaska. We did, um, and then uh, from the top of Alaska to the bottom, and then we got to sent to Mount Pinatubo when that blew up, and that was like. You know, that was not fun, but, you know, I get to experience a lot. And shark diving. In terms of actually making an IMAX film, 
how was the process different? It was totally different. I mean, it's the cameras as big as this table, mm-hmm. and those days the film is uh, seventy millimeter, sixty five millimeter, and it was uh, fifteen perf, which means it goes sideways. So it's like probably uh, four times as big as a regular 35 millimeter. Did people even really know if you told someone you're working on IMAX film, did yeah. people really know what that was? Yeah. Because IMAX was still it's big in the museums. Okay. You know, and the things that's all we were doing museum films, mm-hmm. you know, that was the days when, um, when they did do the stones film in IMAX, the concert film museums wouldn't even play it, <laughs> you know, because, Oh, it's rock and roll. They're going to tear up the museum. It's like, <laughs> Whatever. I wish I'd done that one. But, um, and so then what'd you do? Uh, then I went into, that's when I went into the IMAX and then dad got sick. And that's when I stayed home and started this, but and then started getting into production. Uh, but when I started doing production, I just started uh, producing a few videos for some friends that were directors. And by then I had known so much about, I didn't know much about producing but i had done everybody else's you know and i was a grip i was an electrician i was you know that art department so i had done a lot to understand how to get things across mm-hmm. you know and what my dad taught me a lot and it had nothing to do with the music business it just taught about how to deal with people you know you know if you treat people well and you know and i get away with that most of the time you know i'd rather you know I don't know a lot, you know, sometimes, but I just know I'll get through it, you know, and that's how I figured it out. What did he think about the project? You know what? I, you know, it's funny because um, he never got to see anything because mm-hmm. it was we were shooting film. We were shooting 16 millimeter at the time. So I only had it developed and then just, you know, shoved it away. Um, so it was kind of, but... He was great. I mean, when we sat at the round table, and he was still healthy at the time, you know, he was still strong. And then I went back maybe six months later to do a single interview with him, and it wasn't the same. And I couldn't even think about using it because what he was saying was okay, but he was so weak. Mm-hmm. And it was so just, you know, it would pull you out. And, um, but I know he was proud. I, I'm sure he was proud. You know, and sitting around that table, he knew what I needed. Mm-hmm. I, you know, I knew when things died down on that table, on that round table, he would pick it up again. You know, if I didn't know where to go, he would start taking it somewhere. And, you know, he, he would have been a great director, actually, you know, for that reason. He knew he could read a room like no one could. I mean, honestly, God, he was the best in the business for understanding. Um, I mean, the guy said he was the greatest common sense guy. He could get through any session and make a right. Mm-hmm. Um, but he was a bullshit artist. Oh, he was the best. <laughs> you know, he would, he would, people, I was talking about, um, he did, um, you know, like Lalo Schifrin was one of the great composers, you know, from Argentina. No, Lalo knows everything about music, especially from Argentina. He said, Tommy, I need you to do the flamingo guitar on this piece, whatever it was, the movie. And he says, and my, and my father says, Lalo, do you want the, do you want it like this? And as you saw in the movie, my father had brilliant chops when it came to acoustic guitar, mm-hmm. whipping through it, sounded like a classical, you know, Spanish genius. And then he says, or do you want the DiCincenzo style? And you do it again. And he slapped this side, the body. And he's, and Lalo obviously went with the DiCincenzo style. 
And then he would tell people, he said, Deacon Chenzo's a bricklayer in Niagara Falls, New York. He doesn't play guitar. <laughs> but he would do that because he, but just, he was so full of shit. He just wanted to see if he could get away with it. And he would take, you know, he was great at it. And the guys, you know, because there was baffles in the studio, if, if there was, you know, there's so many times if he knew the guy didn't know anything, what was going on, but they wanted to show off he was going to make him suffer. <laughs> and um, and he would do it for his friends. You know, we never call the guy out on it. He would, right. But for his friends in the studio, Hal or Leland Scalar or Don Randy, whatever. And, hey, Tommy, can you play that on 12 strings? Sure. And he, you know, put his guitar down, pick up the same guitar. Um, you know, do another, maybe do it on this and that. Put it down, come back. Came back with the same guitar three or four times. And by the last one, yeah, that's perfect. <laughs> you know, he was just, you know... He says people judge by eyes. You know they don't. And he said the same thing with um. What does that mean? People well, judge like by they, eyes. They think they know because they're looking mm-hmm. at something, but they're not listening all the time. You know, and they're trying to. You know, it, so it's like when he was doing um, someone might. It, what was the other thing that uh, they Leland Sklar told me? Uh, what was it? It was hilarious. Um. But I mean, he was, you know, like finger picking. He was, he's not a, you know, like acoustic guitar. He's, you know, a classical guitar. He's not a finger picker. You know, that's not, he uses a pick. So he was brilliant at, you know, that's what he did. And when he started out in the late 50s in LA, they would say, um, hey, um, do you, they would call all the other guys, Barney Kessel, do you play classical? No. Uh, Howard Robbins, do you play classical? No. You know, everybody go through the list and they get to this guy, Tommy Tedesco. Yes. Okay. He gets in. Now he's doing a Marlboro commercial. You know, just, it was just, that was it. And this kept going on. And all of a sudden, everybody realized, wait, he's just using a pick. <laughs> so they all start playing. But that's what he did. He got broke in that way. And he, um, he just knew, I don't have to be the greatest classical player. I just need to know enough to get through this. Same thing, that's the difference between a studio player and a specialist. Mm -hmm. He said, and this is one thing he said in that interview, he said, I asked him, what's the difference between a studio player and a specialist? He says, the door's closed. You don't know what's behind the door when you get there. So if you're going to send in B.B. King, what if it's an acoustic piece? What if it's reading? What if it's mandolin? If you want the blues, you send B.B. King in there, but don't expect him to do something else on the last second. And he said... Same thing when he said with rock. He says, I'm not the greatest rock player. I'm not the greatest classical player. You know, I'm good for what I do. But don't, you know, and that's what they do. They can do a little of this, a little of that. Mm-hmm. And, but, you know, he said he was a good guitar player. You know, many of us would disagree. I think he was a great guitar player. Yeah. But he, um, he said, but he understood, you know, he again he would look at situations he was the they said the greatest reader in town he could they said he could read fly shit (laughs) and it was i mean and he would show the kids he's you know and that in the movie where glenn campbell says um you know he had the piece upside down he was reading it backwards (laughs) well he used to practice that way because in the when he started when he came out to niagara falls he was like um you know, he was got to L.A. and was like, oh, God, I'm, you know, he didn't want to work in a you know, warehouse. So he practiced reading and he would turn the music upside down. So he never memorized it. So he just read it backwards. 
he could do uh, transpose on the spot. You know, take trumpet parts and instantly know where he was. So he's he was pretty. Um, Wait, what? Sorry, what was the what was the the point of reading it backwards? It was just another way of reading music. Just to sort of keep him on the yeah, ball. Yeah. So you didn't memorize it. So you mm-hmm. just instead of whatever I can't. I'm, if I had a piece of music, I wouldn't know. But if it was a, down here, it's maybe an F. You but you flip it upside down. Now it's an E. Or you know right. you're looking at it upside down. Mm-hmm. So I could be totally wrong on this. No. <laughs> <laughs> um. So he didn't memorize it. So in, in other words, he so he would just keep practicing. He would do eight ten hours a day just reading music. Mm-hmm. You know. So when he finally got to really working. That's what he was known for. My God, this guy could read anything. But he would also tell the guys, just because there's a piece of music there, that does, that's not music. You got to put yourself into that music. You know, you could play that, but it doesn't mean it's going to be good. Mm-hmm. You have to have the feeling. You have to feel. You know what the composer wants. Um, what kind of dad was he? He was, he was an amazing guy. Um. You know what? He's an amazing person. He was a great dad. But I think the making of this film showed me so much more of who he was. Um, this is where I get teary-eyed. There were people that you run into that tell you, you know, stories. You know, there's one story the other day that came to me. Um, there's so many. But this guy was, he said, I met your dad. He says, in Mammoth, California, I'm in a Beatles tribute band. He says... And it's out in a park, and your dad was also playing earlier or whatever. And I went up to your dad, and, he's, and this is when there was a school called Musicians Institute, GIT, in Hollywood. It was a big school, expensive school. It's like going to Berkeley or any one of those private schools. Dad was very involved in this school. You know, he's one of the co-founders, one of the founders, whatever. And he was known to be part of this. And the kid went up to him, he says introduce himself he says listen i'm really thinking about going to git and my father you know started talking to him he says is are those your kids over there he says yeah he says is that your wife he says yeah he says well are you doing all this meaning like are you doing this band thing he says yeah he's keeping busy he says you know what you don't need to go to git what you need to do just go get a guy study privately and what he was telling the kids don't go there you don't need to yeah, you get you might get a lot out of it, but your family needs you, you know. And that to me was like, I had never heard that story until last week, and it mm-hmm. really struck me as well, a wonderful story. Um, but there were stories like that. There was another guy named uh, Chuck Rainey, a wonderful bass player, who was the guy, the god of bass players in the seventies. He comes out to L.A. He's the guy on records. Now he's in doing a TV thing, and all of a sudden. You know, in TV, again, where it's different than studio albums. He's got a piece that the piece of music, uh, bass signature goes into, it goes into an odd time signature in the piece, and he's lost during the stake. And my father doesn't even know who he is, just hits a chord really bad. And they look to Tommy, you okay? Yeah, I'm fine, let's do it again. <laughs> you know, roll back the film, start up again. And Chuck Rainey says, all of a sudden, I'm at that part again. I'm lost. He says, I'm totally lost and I'm out of time. And your father comes in again, hits again, hits a loud noise. Tommy, okay, yeah, just drop the pick. It won't, let's go. And he turns, he says, Now you're on your own. <laughs> you know, basically, I can't save your ass again. And now Chuck said, I never even met the guy, but he knew I was the new guy. 
And that's the thing. He gave him the chance. You know, he gave him a break. That's you know, so nice. It's, it, those are the because he could do that. Yeah, he knew he's always going to come back. Did the story um, where he told the guy that he didn't need to go to the guitar guitar institute? institute. Yeah. Do you tear up in that story because it's him expressing how important family is? I think so. I think so. And also being realistic. He's such a realistic guy. You know, you're going to get something out. But you know what? Don't put yourself in such jeopardy. You know, which is really interesting because I put myself in such jeopardy with this film. So I think that's also why I get teary-eyed. What kind of jeopardy? Just financially. Mm. You know, um, you know, my if it wasn't for my wife, you know, that was working all the time. I was working, but you know, the last couple of years, where it's really it was like do or die. We crossed that line of, you know, of like, well, what do we do? How did you raise money for the film? Oh God, we, there was so many different ways. I mean, it was 2010. I mean, obviously, it, you know, people said, you know, who helped you? And I said, well, Wells Fargo helped, Visa helped, Mastercard, <laughs> um, countrywide. They were very kind. But after a while, we just ran out of money, you know, after we made the film. And that's when we realized we had to figure out a different way. And so we ended up doing, um, basically, I went to someone and said, hey, I, you know, I wanted to, oh, that's what I was telling you earlier about how to try to find money through these different companies mm-hmm. for the DVD. But this other guy said, why don't you do dedication chapter? I said, what do you mean? He says, you know how they put bricks in the buildings, you know, with the names and stuff like that, $500,000? I said, yeah. He says, I'll give you $1,000 right now for Up, Up, and Away, which was my favorite song as a kid. He says, and it also got me into radio. And that changed his life. I said, all right. And I thought, okay, let's do it. So we went to the IDA, International Documentary Association, and they became our fiscal sponsor. So he gave $1,000. That became our first donation. And then we started going, all right, $5 or under 100 you became a groupie. 100 plus, you'd be a roadie. Uh, at 300 you became A&R. You know, it kept going on and coming up with different levels. And the dedications, you know, you find people that want to dedicate a song, you know, to their loved ones, and they write it out. But my best is, my favorite is last year when... I looked at the list of the songs that was left over, and one of them was um, Gary Lewis's Everybody Loves a Clown. I thought, no one's going to pick that one. You know, that's <laughs> kind of insulting, but I thought, I'm going to go for it. So I called the L.A. Clown School and pitched them <laughs> the idea. And the guy goes, man, I like this. This is a great idea. And I got $1,000 out of it. And now I'm so proud of that because I suck at sales. Uh-huh. And, but it was like, I, I, I'm a great uh, idea guy. Just don't know how to put it to work. You know, it gets so other people to do it. But it was that kind of thing. It was like thinking outside the box. I go on the road. I take the film on the road and do four wallet, you know, where you rent a theater, you show it to people, get donations. I go to a local theater or local areas and get a, maybe give tickets to a, a, a um, you know, music store or a dog groomer. Mm-hmm. You know, give you tickets. If you put, I'll put your name up on the screen. You became a sponsor. It was just looking at the demographics of our audience, and we just kept going that way. You know, soon we got finally we you know made enough money. Then we turned enough money to pay off the licensing of the publishers and the the labels. But then we had that one big bill, which was called the musicians union bill, and we need to raise two hundred thousand. Wow. So it went to Kickstarter, and when we went to Kickstarter. 
when we got to Kickstarter, it was basically, all right, well, we got to 200,000, only 1% ever make over 200,000. Or, you know, 1% only make over 100,000. If you don't make it, you're going to get, you know, you lose everything. And everybody thought I was nuts again. And I thought, well, we got to try it. You know, I don't want to go keep going back saying, oh, I need 100, but I need another 100. So basically, we went for it. And, you know, the only reason this film is here is because of all those people, if they donated over the years, bought a shirt, or told someone else, it kept this the machine going. You know, the, you know, this train was moving and it built up steam where we had enough names and people went for it. You know, it's, we were talking earlier about, um, when you, you know, were your friends thinking you're crazy, mm. you know, even in a therapy. Well, that's not how I put it, but well, <laughs> <laughs> perhaps that was the, uh, maybe suggestion. that's how I thought I, maybe that's how I listened. How you heard it. Yeah. I heard it. That way. <laughs> um, I remember talking to, you know, being really frustrated and remember, you know, in a therapy once and, you know the person's you know the therapist said you know maybe you should take off a few months i said no you don't get it i can't take off for a few months and i'm i was serious and i still believe i did couldn't because you take off a few months when a project like this is going you're dead the machine stopped moving so every time for all those last four years i would give people updates yep we're here we're doing this up oh, you're here if you walk away you're dead it's Why? over. Why do you think? Because then they they lose contact. They also think, oh, it's already out. Film came and went. Mm-hmm. That was the other thing we were fighting. People think, I saw that film. Right. I saw that in like 2008. No, you saw it at a festival. We're out now. Mm-hmm. You know, or the worst is someone comes up to you and say, oh, I love that film. Really? Where'd you see it? Oh, I couldn't wait. I, I, I downloaded it. It's like, <laughs> oh, come on, dude. Well, so when did it officially come out? Uh, officially came out in the public in 2015, two weeks ago, three, yeah. And is it in a bunch of theaters now? It's in 113 theaters. We were only supposed to be in five theaters. There's some controversy regarding Carol Kay and yeah. the name The Wrecking Crew. What's yeah. going on with that? Well, the name is, to some, is if it's a controversy, is the name was basically, how did the book, The Wrecking Crew book, in 1990, I think it was? And... He used to always tell the story how the older guys said they're going to wreck the business playing this rock and roll. So the book title was Wrecking Crew. Well, some people don't remember. Carol doesn't remember the name being used. My dad didn't remember it. Some people do. Some people don't. So, but it was a good name for the book and it was a great name and it just continued to grow, you know, among historians or whatever. Doesn't, but now when you say doesn't remember the name being used, no one is the suggestion that he made it up? Well, it's a suggestion that someone used it and made it up or, yeah, it could have been made up just for the, the name of the book. I mean, right. I think the... Is that, is that what, what her problem, she thinks? Well, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And she's probably right. But the problem is, Carol said, we didn't wreck the business. So she didn't understand the irony. Mm-hmm. And when I interviewed Carol, she's amazing. I mean, she's an amazing character in this film. She is a star in this film. The only uh, woman, uh, only, right? I mean, I mean, not just the only woman. I mean, yes, only woman. But I, you know, when I talked to guys like Glenn Campbell, and he said, he says, you know, the reason these guys were in together in the six, early sixties is, is this is backtracking a little, but it comes back to this. They were all Michael Jordans in that room. They had to be able to play 
and knock this stuff out in three hours. I had to get in and get out, get in and get out. So if you were a weak link in this group of musicians, you blew it for everybody because they didn't have Pro Tools. They didn't have any of the computers. So they went, you know, they had to start from the top. Let's do this mono. It's one track. There's no backing up. You can't just punch in. It wasn't that easy. So they would do that. And and I say this because Carol was one of those guys. Carol's playing guitar when she's playing bass. As a bass player, you're driving the band with the drummer. There, You guys are locking in. Once you clock in, everybody follows you. So it was so important. So she wasn't a, uh, and again, I feel I'm always insulting some tambourine player, but she <laughs> wasn't a tambourine player. You know, she was a driver of this group. So she was there as a bass player first. All right, cut to the film. She's in the film. She's amazing in the film. Uh, over the years, she and Hal had issues over a lot of things. You know, not romantic. People think it's romantic. It was not romantic. They had issues. And then they got to 2008. I was a kid of divorced parents, basically, it felt like. And I had to keep them, you know, basically everybody. I needed to make sure everybody's happy. So I took the film out to show it to her. She loved it. She had a problem with the name. I said, but she understood. I took it to him. He loved it. And fine. Um. And got into, we got to, uh, you know, um, finally we got into 2008. She was so behind it. She wrote me a wonderful quote. And she saw the love that she was getting from all the screenings. And unfortunately, and when we finally did a screen in L.A., it, you know, they got into it. And it was it was sad. What happened? And it just basically told her off. He did? Yeah. What did he say? I'm not saying. <laughs> okay, did everyone well, hear it though and was it public just, it, no it wasn't it was public enough that she and she was right she was in she was hurt and i didn't blame her she was wrong it, she was wronged as if there's if there's a verb but it was the thing is what's sad was and i said carol please don't do this she said i'm backing out i can't support the film i said don't do that because Why? because she felt like it was it became about um it, it was the she took another look at the film as if it was Hal's film and it wasn't Hal's oh. film. It's never and you when you see it, it's not. Right. If anything, and and then she's then you know so she went off on that and and she was quiet for six months, and you know and then um, you know then she totally went off and then she starts going off on you know internet and stuff like that about me and about the film and it's about my you know and the sad thing is it's. I try to be cool about it because of some of the things that are said. I just realize if you respond, you're going to make it worse. Mm -hmm. um, I still think she's brilliant and a musician. Has um, she made it? Per where is she saying stuff? Oh, anybody says I love you in the film and she goes off on them. Like in comment sections yeah. and stuff. Yeah. And our wow. website, I mean, the website. If, you know, now I'm going to send everybody there and now I'm going to get all this grief now. Well, it was, you know, but the thing is, is she anybody making, that's, Is she making it personal? Yeah. And she said, I, um, so one of the things. She's a hater now. Yeah. I mean, she, um, when she said the thing, some of the comments on the, on those, uh, chat rooms, whatever she says was, um, the, I lied to them. I lied to them because it was about them as a group, not about him and his father. I went, well, that was a turn we took in editing. And it's kind of a weird 
aspect to go after. Right, you know to I mean? be upset about that. You yeah. Know I mean, if you go and if you went, if it became about Hal or about someone right. else, it'd be a different story, but it wasn't. So that kind of, it's just off base. Yeah. And, and you're sure it's the real her. I mean, I guess. Oh, no, it's her. Yeah. I guess no one else is <laughs> I, invested. I, I'm looking at you going, I'm not sure what you mean. <laughs> I'm looking at the real her. It depends. Well, <laughs> I know. No, no, no sorry. It's, it's from her. <laughs> It's I don't her. mean one of her other personalities. I'm suggesting that people can impersonate famous people. No, 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 online, no, 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 no. But I guess no, no. It's yeah, it's, it's her. And, and it's so. You know, listen, um, <laughs> <laughs> that's so funny. Um, no comment. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's it's hard because you know I know what you guys go through. You know, actors and presenters, or you know anybody that you've been in, in public you, eye, yeah. in public eye. You know, listening to you know working with comedians on all those years, you know, on different shows and knowing all these comics. I realize, I mean, you got to have a thick skin. Yeah. I mean, lucky for me, I only had to put one documentary out. It took me 19 years, but thank God <laughs> they like it. You know what I mean? There's those few comments. You got, I had three bad reviews out of 100. It's like, I am like, you know, and it still hurt. I would be, there's no way I could do this. You know? You build up a tolerance, I think. It you, begins to not bother you as much, but the, the, uh, the um oh what's the word it starts with an i ego no that's e the like inoculation (laughs) into it but not introduction it's oh orientation that's oh maybe that's what i mean i don't know you just introduction all those words mean the same i know what you mean it's 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 like a learning thing yeah the introduction into it is uh is difficult Indoctrination. Indoctrination. Ding, 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 ding. He gets a prize. Jeff Fox, exactly. Oh, God, you're awesome, Jeff. Yeah. It is, it's weird because I really, um, that whole thing is the only controversy, really. And what's funny on that podcast, or not podcast, but that, uh, Skype thing, you know, um, when we started, you know, the thing I did about building up this audience was doing Facebook. And that was a weird thing at the beginning, you know, Facebook, you know, one fan. All now, so now we're almost at 60,000 fans. Now we had 7,000 fans in the last two weeks, but we were way up there. We've been doing trivia and do all these things to keep people going. Well, when I got those contracts from the union, I put this contract out there, one of the Beach Boys, just for, to show people, you know, oh my God, people are freaks. They come after you. That's not right. <laughs> it's like, all right, relax. I learned my lesson. Then it's like, I didn't take it down for a few months because I forgot because I'm like one man ban here. It's on my website somewhere, not even on the Facebook page. And I'm, it's like, they're accusing me of like, you know, changing history. Guys, the Beach Boys did play their own songs at the beginning. The only reason the Beach Boy, when Brian started, you know, if you said this earlier, but when Brian started using these guys, it was for the benefit of him. You know, the Beach Boys were on the road. He didn't want to go on the road. You know, so it was like, you know, it's, that's why it worked out for him. But yeah, the anger sometimes of people are just, especially with, I guess, documentaries and historical things, you know, where there's going to be some kind of facts involved. Mm-hmm. If it's, you know, fictional, it would be different. So what were the issues between Hal and Carol? I, You know, it really started by the book. Really? Started, I mean, that's what I'm told. You know, that's what I'm, you know, there are two people that are, they were, you know, older, have, you know, amazing, you know, reputations. And they lived two doors down from each other at one point. So that didn't oh. go over well. But I just... Was, but the book title, or did she not like what, what no, was the book in the title. book? No, she's in the book. She's awesome in the book. 
he gives her great he gives her great credit. So it was book. just the title that bothered. Yeah, her. you know, and you know, unfortunately, people start remembering things differently now too. Is you know, um, it, it's just weird. I'm so glad I got them when they were younger. <laughs> when I say younger, in their sixties, because it gets tough now. Mm-hmm. Ugh, all this drama is really making me need a snack. Uh, and you probably feel the same and you probably want something healthy to snack on. I mean, of course you do. That's why you need a snack from Nature Box. Choose from over nice. 100 healthy, crave-worthy options to be delivered right to your door. All their snacks are made with zero artificial flavors, colors, or sweeteners, zero grams trans fats, and no high fructose corn syrup. And best of all, they taste amazing. So grab something like sweet blueberry almonds, salted caramel pretzel pops, Parmesan garlic pop pops. They're all so good and they're good for you. And if you go right now to naturebox.com slash Allison. You can get a free trial of your favorite snacks. So again, get free snacks delivered to your door. What are you waiting for? Go to naturebox.com slash Allison, naturebox.com slash Allison to start your free trial today. We do have a segment called Just Mirror Everyone that we're going to do in a sec. But first, I just want to ask, how has this film affected your marriage? Oh, God. (laughs) (laughs) And what does your wife do? She's a commercial producer. Um, it's been tough. I mean, it's funny because it, God bless her. I mean, she hung in there and maybe I expected too much from everybody. And I think that is the toughest part. You know, if it wasn't for her, we wouldn't be here. If it wasn't for my mother, my dad would not have been there. And I'm not trying to compare my mother to doctor. I'm not trying to compare my mother to my, <laughs> my, my wife, but, <laughs> but it was, it, you know, after a while, you know, you're draining your, you know, you're, refinancing. It's like, why are we to pay the credit card? Why are we paying off the credit card? Because we used it for the shoot. You know, those things kept piling up. And it was the last, you know, I was working, but the last two years, my when I wasn't working, I was going full force, seven, you know, 24-7 on this. If I'm going to a certain town, I'm finding sponsors. I'm going for, I'm trying to send out this, trying to, I was trying to come up with my feelings. If I raised that money, which I did, and raised over half a million dollars. That was my job, so mm-hmm. that we could someday make our money back. So, but it's been stressful, and hopefully, our lives will get back together. And you know, she's, you know, she's a saint, you know, to last this long with me. And are you? Have you begun to make some of the money back? Um, or are you? I mean, not re- sort of- I mean, well, I mean, they. I don't see anything until they make their money back. You know, some the only who's w- the they here? The Magnolia folks. Oh, okay. So until I see, you know, and the money I make is right now is basically coming off of merch, which isn't really a money maker, mm-hmm. you know. Um, but it's it's helps, you know, it, it helps keep the brand going. Right. The DVDs, I'm able to sell the DVDs starting in June, so I'm hoping that they come to me instead of Amazon, you know, because at least I know I'll make a couple more dollars. You know, it, it's weird doing this stuff. I mean. If it was 10 years ago, it would have been a different world. If this, the film would have not been the same if it was 10 years ago. So that would have been not as good. But if it was the same film, we wouldn't be doing this right now called podcast. Right. You know, we, we wouldn't be doing a, a Skype video, a Skype, what do you, you know, Interview. Q&A. Yeah. And um, the Facebook thing is huge. It's worked out. I swear to God, everything has worked out for the better this way. So... I mean, they say you're not supposed to invest your own money in a film, right? right? Why no, is that, though? Because of this reason. Because <laughs> <It's like, laughs> there's a huge chance you're going to lose. There's always a huge chance you're going to lose. But the thing is, 
my dad was a gambler and maybe that was what I took from it. But also there was, you know, at that point when you got, we got to that point where I crossed a line, you know, a friend of mine, Ali Salim said that with his film, he was at 15 years. He said, I crossed a line when I had to continue. Well, I crossed that line in 2006, first line. That's when we made the film. Mm-hmm. You know, it's like I could describe it as having a property and you're overlooking the ocean, but you got nothing but a property. You have the plans, you got all this stuff, appliances and everything, but until you build it, you can't sell it. So that's what we did and we built it. And now we have a beautiful property, 2008, but the market crashed, <laughs> you know what I mean? And it, which was true. And now we got this property that's overvalued in a sense no one's going to take it. So the, how do you bring, if we had to bring that price down to where we could one day release it and we had to do it legally, obviously play it off the, and that's when we, you know, if the film had done badly in those, um, rev, uh, not the reviews in the, well, yeah, if done, reviews, if it done horribly in the reviews in 2008 in the festivals, we would have quit. It would have been, a, you know, put the tail behind my you know legs and walk away. But it was the opposite. Elvis Costello's flipping out. Peter Frampton's flipping out. You know, uh, you know, all kinds of people are flipping out with reviews and stuff. And it was like, all right, now what? Keep going. And that's why it was 110%. I was driven not to quit on that at that point. So, Have you started thinking about what your next film will be? Um, I have two choices. Selling ice cream, just chocolate and vanilla is one. <laughs> A kazoo player that only plays one song. <laughs> I don't know. I I do. I mean, I just I'm thinking about. There was another idea about, you know, doing some. Uh, there was a rest home that deals with uh, folks in um, in the film business. You know, in the west and out in uh, Woodland Hills. There's a lot of ideas. I just can't take my family down this road again. I go back to interviewing like I do for other people and, you know, producing commercials and stuff. Mm-hmm. But I, you know, I'm a gun for hire, but I love marketing. I mean, the marketing thing was so much fun. You know? So will you not do another documentary then if you're saying No, you I can't? will. If, if I just, you know, you I need to if, give them a break. <laughs> 20, 20 years, I'll be 75. <laughs> you know, so no, I just need to, I just can't do it on my own. Oh, I see. Do you know what I mean? I just can't mm-hmm. finance my own docs. And that's how a lot of these things are done. You know, I will take what I have going, I've what I've learned, and the fame I have for that 15 minutes, and hopefully something will come through. You know, I know what we need to do is strike while it's there, and one of them is trying to find that next thing. So that's interesting. So you, when you say that you interview people for other people. Well, like like I used to do for Comedy Central, you know, when people, you know, do the, we had a, uh, what was that, a TV land you know, just like you do, someone sends out a crew, hey, we need to do some wraparounds for someone. Right. Or we're going to do an interview for, uh, you know, a TV show called, uh, what was it? Uh, a hot t- a TV top 10 or whatever. You know, oh, these, you know, I've those. done a bunch of those. Yeah, you've done them. I've, yeah. yeah. I've done a They're bunch hilarious, of them. They're hilarious. You know, I think here's my, the, what was the film that um, I did when it was top 10 Brady Bunch episodes, top 10 this, top 10 uh-huh. that. And I had it, and it was top 10 fathers, top 10 this. And this guy, Robert Small, he was genius marketing producer. But Robert would make us do, and that's how I met Dana Gould and all these guys. It was uh, for Comedy Central, it was called uh, Pulp Comics, the show. And this show I had to go do is interview people, the top 10 list, it was called. And I remember interviewing, um, oh God, help me out, Fred Willard. Mm-hmm. Oh, he's great. Yeah. And do you remember the movie he did where um, Christopher Guest, 
had a, basically they had done a TV show. I can't remember the name of it where they were like the show itself became famous. It was whatever this wasn't. Mighty, not Mighty. No, my, Mighty Wind. Uh, Fernwood Tonight. No, no, no. That was another uh, show that we'll talk about. But Fernwood Tonight, where my father was involved in. But it was basically Christopher Guest did this. It was the, one of his movies, and it wasn't. But it, basically, Fred Willard comes to interview the all this these people, right? Well, my interview with with Fred was you know top ten whatever it was, <laughs> but we would always ask, they would always make us ask something that wasn't part of this show. It was part of a show that he wasn't supposed to be on. Yeah. And I, and it was just, it was always a hustle. And I said, Fred, could you tell me what your favorite Brady Bunch character was? <laughs> and he looks at me like, what are you talking about? <laughs> and you know, it was like, it was such a throwaway line. Uh. And, he, and he has no idea. And I said, okay, thank you. I've asked, I've done it. Cut to that movie that he's doing. He's doing the interview and he's got, Christopher Guest and Harry Shearer and the whole cast <laughs> of that show. And he's sitting there like Entertainment Tonight. So, so tell me, what was your favorite Brady Bunch character? <laughs> I was like, oh my God. <laughs> well, so I was going to ask, because obviously I'm an interviewer as well, yeah. but that kind of interviewing is very different, right? I mean, did you like, yeah, when, yeah. do they give you the questions? Are those? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Okay. So you're really just asking the questions yeah, that they tell yeah, you Yeah, you're to trying ask. to, you, hopefully you'll get something out of it, you know, and then, Hopefully, we're good enough to go back and ask again if you didn't get anything. But no, I mean, I enjoy doing, you know, I enjoy interviewing real people. Mm-hmm. I enjoy real people versus an actor. Really? Why? They're so gross. <laughs> exactly. They smell. <laughs> it's just when they're not selling something, like me, I'm selling, you know, mm-hmm. but it's fun to find out about real people. Yeah. And I think that's the coolest thing is, you know, in every, you know, people say, and I tell people in the Q and A's, you know, you should go interview your parents and your grandparents. It's too easy now. You don't have to make a doc, but just record it, put mm-hmm. it away. Mm-hmm. You know, for history. You know, we should all do it. So, it's a really good idea. I've never, I've had my parents, my parents used to appear on my like web videos and things like that sometimes, but I've never actually sat them down. You know what it is? My dad is so hammy that like it's impossible to get. Not in real life, but if you turn a camera on, he turns into like, I'm dad guy. Right. And it's impossible to get a real straight Is he an actor? actual. No. Oh. He's just a dad. He's a retired doctor. But That's you funny. know what? He used to play trumpet though. So he does Did have he? that performer thing in yeah. him. Yeah. It, so. It's uh, years ago, I had my family's from Niagara Falls, New York, my, where my parents are from. And I remember going to visit the old aunts. And, you know, they're in their 80s at the time, my grandmother and her aunts. And I remember just putting a camera in the corner just because I knew it what, you know, just hitting. And just talking to them, not let them know that they were being filmed. You did or didn't? Did. Okay. <laughs> it was No, it was great. I didn't let them know. I was so it's yeah. to get creepy. <laughs> no, it was creepy, but they never knew. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but the things you get out of them was extraordinary, you know, because they didn't want to talk about certain things on camera because it was, you know, delicate. Right. You know, but it was for me, it was, you know, important to the family history. Mm-hmm. But, you know, um, the Fernwood Tonight thing was... Um, my dad got called to do Fernwood Tonight, which was a talk show that a pretend talk show Martin Mull did in the seventies. And he got the call and he said, Would you come down and do an audition? He said, No, I'm not gonna go down for an audition. He says, I'm because every time I do, they're looking for a guy that's 125 pounds and he's real cute and good looking and he's twenty five. <laughs> and she said no. He said, No. And he said, No, we're looking for a guy he's from like he's a truck driver from Cleveland. <laughs> I said, Okay, I'll be right down. And that's when he got to go do that. So, but that was another time where 
smoking almost cost him a job because he refused. He's when he got there, he was smoking, and the fire marshal said, "You can't smoke on set." He says, "Oh my god!" He says, "I'll get you another guy to play this, this, you know, the guitar." <sighs> and then Norman Lear said, "No, no, just write in." Guitar player smokes cigarettes all the time. So he was round the clock. Oh, I mean, not when he slept, obviously, but like chain smoked. He's three packs a day. Wow. Easy. You know, it's, you know, and later he understood how sick it was, you know, how his ego got to him as well as that, that cigarette, you know, drove his ego. Right. You know, what do you mean I can't smoke? You don't have me then. Mm -hmm. You know, there was a point when Vicky Carr would call him and said, and they said, no smoking. And he said, then no Tedesco. <laughs> it's like, great. So then it's like, that's how bad he was. Yeah. And he did the uh, live at the Greek theater with Vicky Carr. And they had to make an arrangement so that the guitar player could have a break. When he wasn't playing, he could walk off stage and have a cigarette. That's how much they wanted him because he had that beautiful acoustic, uh, you know, Mexican guitar stuff. You know, with her singing all that, you know, the Latin thing. Mm-hmm. And at one point, they got a call. The office, I was told this recently, Vicky's management got an office, said that ma- uh, the Greek management was concerned because this guy's smoking pot. He's going <laughs> off smoking pot. It was like, he was so not the guy that smoked pot. You know, they just assumed he was smoking pot because he was, you know, going in a corner smoking. Right. You know, but that's a sickness, you know, like any, you know, that was his drug. How how did he feel when he was diagnosed? Scared. Mm-hmm. You know, scared. And I think the stroke really struck him at the worst, I think, because um, then you're wondering, am I ever going to get back to being able to talk? Am I ever going to get back to ever, you know, holding that guitar again? You know, it was his right side that went, so his, tremor, his tremolo hand or whatever mm-hmm. you call it. Strumming hand. Yeah, you could tell I'm not a guitar player. <laughs> Um, but I think that that bothered him the most and, you know, he was great. And it's so funny cause he was so claustrophobic and so overweight. And he used to say, you know, when they were trying to give him, uh, the MRI, he refused to go in and they realized he was too big for the MRI. So he thought God helped him there. I was like, Oh, you're sick. God helped him there. But he was, he was scared. You know, and I think that was the hardest is watching. I think that's what bothered us the most watching is that, watching yeah. that take away. And that's why at the end of the film, that last line in the film, I say, um, just before um, he passed away. And I remember this. I remember being in the den, him saying it to me. He said, you know, the stroke came at the right time. And what he meant was it came at the right time in his career. No one's calling that much. Now I have a good reason I can't play versus you. You're, we're not calling. That's a different story. Yeah. Um, but I think that, uh, you know, it's, it's a drag to go out that way. So. Yeah. Um, did Was he afraid the whole time? Or, I mean, it went so fast. Did he sort of. You know, it, I've, he- I've heard that people, ca- they, they sort of make peace with what's happening and they are ready for death. He was death. very, very at peace. With, when he had the cancer, he was at peace. I think, you know, it's funny because he wasn't religious, but he was. Um, but I know he, he realized he did what he did in his life, which was phenomenal. He was never going to be a guitar player. That was not some, that was even in the cards. And what, and I didn't tell you that story it was in the film. We talk about it where he got that audition at that dance mm-hmm. in Niagara Falls, New York. 
And they said the guitar player in that band was leaving. And my father's, someone said, my father, hey, they auditioned. So he auditioned and got the job and left for the you know this tour in this big band. When he got fired, though, he got fired because he downsized the band, got someone that could play guitar and sing. He was so ashamed to go back to small town that he was like, didn't want to go back. And he said to my mom, let's go to Hollywood. And I asked my mom, I said, how long was it before you guys left? A year, year and a half? She goes, no, it was three weeks. <laughs> Boom. Like, go to Hollywood, go back to Niagara Falls, drive in his car, grab the kid and my mom and gone. And then she said, I said, did he work a lot during, uh, you know, during those days, you know, as a musician? She goes, no, there's no work for a musician in 1953 and you know a wedding maybe and she says he wasn't going to that dance because he did get a job in pennsylvania with his jazz trio and she said you have to come to this dance he said but i got a job but i spent 35 dollars on this dress <laughs> so her dress changed life because he went because he wasn't looking to be a guitar player for a living and being fired was probably the best thing for him so all right let's do just me or everyone and there's a song Sometimes I ponder on something I have thought or done. Is it just me or everyone? All right, this is where people write in with things that they think or do, and they wonder, is it just me or everyone? And then we say whether we also have these thoughts or we do these things. So Zanera Park says, people in professions that ramble jargon at me for 10 minutes, how do you not know that I don't know what the fuck excuse me, WTF, you're talking about, and then hashtag my mechanic. You know, I hadn't thought about this until I read this tweet, but then it occurred to me, yes, how are they not aware that you don't know what they're, what, that you don't know what they're saying? For example, I worked in magazines for years and years and years. Jeff, you also have a publishing background. Yes. There's all sorts of things you say, uh, in publishing, but I would, I would know that a layperson doesn't know what stet means or lead L E D E or, you know, a million things like that. So I would, or actually, you know, in, in magazines, you always refer, you never use the word article. It's always a story. But if I'm, I would translate to a lay person. So how do all the other people who do it, how do they not realize? Or maybe they do. Maybe if you're associating with people socially that are in that business, then you forget that people don't understand what fonts and kerning and things like that are. Cause you're just <laughs> right. so into it. Yeah, I guess. But she's saying her mechanic is rambling mechanic jargon. I feel like sometimes that's intentional, too. I do, too. Just, With a mechanic, I think it is. Yeah. It's it's part of, oh, I'm showing you I'm worth, worth the money. Worth the money, yeah. Because <laughs> right. I know lots of things. Right, right. You know who are who the people that I, I've noticed are good at breaking it down, though? Oftentimes, lawyers. They'll like say a bunch of legal legalese, and then they'll be like, "Now, what does that mean?" So, any, and then they'll break it down. Maybe because they're always talking to clients. You no, know, it's also because it's taking time. <laughs> <laughs> so that, that's another five hundred dollars by the time you figure it out. That's true. Uh, all right. Well, what about you? Do you do you use a lot of uh, Hollywood jargon? I don't think so. <laughs> if I did it, you did I use any? I don't think so. I don't think so. You well, cut actually, yourself a grip. <laughs> yeah, it was a grip. To to go back to that question. Uh, if I ever take my car to a mechanic, I actually do the reverse of that. I talk to the mechanic in lots of tech talk because I want him to know that you I'm know. a good that I'm a good shade tree mechanic and that I know that I know what he's doing and I know what the car needs. Yeah. Oh, you're, you're, yeah, but if I tried that, I'd be done in thirty <laughs> seconds. I don't know anything. 
Did you say shade tree mechanic? Yeah. What is is that, that a term for someone who works on their car themselves? Mm-hmm. I never heard that. I like that. Oh, really? Look, See, we great just picked visual. up some jargon. Yeah. See, I just jargoned you. Thank you. Wow. Jargonator. Ruiz B says, I choose the shower closest to my locker. Um, I'm assuming that's at a gym unless you have lockers in your home. Uh-huh. And, uh, well, I never, when I used to go to a gym, I never had my own locker. I, I, w- I never went to a gym where you, oh, or maybe that's a school thing. Because at school, you're assigned a locker. Yeah. Anyway, I guess the answer from me is no, I don't do that. Yeah, I don't I don't remember the last time I had a locker and or showered in public. Right. <laughs> Just don't look at me. <laughs> I'm t- no. I I don't like showering at the gym. It's weird unless you're going to work. Yeah, exactly. What's, what's the rush? Yeah. It's it's the thing. it's not <laughs> and even if you're sandals. going to work. <laughs> it's it's the thing about sandals. I don't like walking through without I forget shoes. That's oh, what yeah. I I don't mind being naked. I have no problem with that. I same. wish you weren't right now, but well, yeah, I began <laughs> to really like the shampoo at the gym that I went to in New York. I went to two different gyms in New York, and one of them was New York Sports Club. Oh, they use Kiehl's, don't they? Oh, I don't think so. Do they now? Oh, they did it. Um, what was the other? The one Equinox. With, Equinox. Is that the did. super high-end gym? New York Sports Club is not a oh, high-end okay. gym like that. But whatever it was... And by the way, I'm sure the shampoo and the shower gel were the same thing, even though they were in two different pumps. Exactly. But I really liked it. So I I almost looked at it as a reward for working out was that I got to have my hair smell like this shampoo for the rest of the day. Okay. Okay. Here's the part I wasn't going to say, the part of the story that I shouldn't have shared, but I'm going to. But see, I had a... <laughs> this is so pathetic. There was this guy that I was sort of seeing... Um, and he went to that gym and he always smelled like this shampoo and I didn't put it together because when we were seeing each other, I did not shower at the gym. But then once I realized, cause I think I said to him, your hair smells good. What is this? And then he's like, oh, that's New York sports club <laughs> shampoo. <laughs> and then after he and I stopped seeing each other, not my choice, although it's so much better. Uh, cause that would not have been a good, a good union. Um, <laughs> after that, then I started shampooing at the gym just to have that memory yes i wish i no it's not it's sad breakup (laughs) it is pathetic okay vc perk says when i see a walker slash jogger turn around mid-street wonder uh wonder if they gave up or was that their goal to meet let me read this one again okay when i see a walker jogger turn around mid-street wonder if they gave up or that was their goal to meet before heading home I, it's not so frequent that I see a walker or jogger turn around mid-street. I've seen it, and I actually did this the other day. Really? Yeah, and I felt really weird. Wait, you you turned around mid-street, or you wondered this? I turned around mid-street. You were I, jogging or walking? I was walking. I don't jog, <laughs> as a rule. <laughs> and I I had a load of laundry in, and I wanted to go for a walk, and I knew how long the laundry took to do. So let's say 22 minutes. So I set my alarm on my phone for 11 minutes and was walking down my street. And then my phone went off for 11 minutes and I turned around and headed back because I figured then I'll be getting there right when it's done. Perfect. And I felt like a crazy person. Huh. Hmm. Like you need... It, I yeah, would, you I would, need some excuse for why you're turning around. Right. You need to... Even if it got to the end of the block, it's weird. You need to kind of... I don't know. Pop your head in a store or something. Well, I would or, drop in your keys or something. Yeah. Or you could look at your watch and go, oh. <laughs> <laughs> like pantomime yeah. it. 
But why is that? Is it because you're afraid? Because I had the same thing. It's like, is it the, the fear that someone will think you're basically just stalking the street or something? It's it's that you're you're turning around for no discernible reason. That right. seems weird. <laughs> There's something suspicious about it. Yeah, it yeah. is. I guess it's the suspicious. Yeah. Sus- it's like walking through parking lots. Yeah. It makes me really nervous when I see, especially if I see a woman or someone, I feel like I'm walking towards her in her car, but I kind of go, well, she, I'm not really coming after her, but my car is next to her. I, I want to like acknowledge the fact that I'm coming that way. I, I just, I, well, just yesterday when I was walking out of having my taxes done, I was walking towards my car and there was this guy just kind of like standing there looking around and I figured he was probably just looking for his car or something. But then as I got closer to my car, he walked the other way and then looped back. And then I was like, what's going, yeah, it totally set off my alarm of like, what's going on? There's a weird like guy just walking around the parking lot aimlessly. Did you grab your keys? I have keyless entry, so. There goes self-defense. Well, actually just this morning I was out. Oh, but I have my house keys. I could have grabbed those. I didn't really, I didn't really think there was anything up. Right. I just, I don't know. Right, but it doesn't seem natural. And yes. so then your 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 senses, your, right. your spidey senses go off. Right. But just this this morning, I was going for a walk and I went across the street and there was a woman that was kind of coming the other way. and sh- and But where I wanted to cross the street would have put me in a position where I looked like I was on an intercept course with her, <laughs> even though I was already headed to that spot. Right. And I had, I felt as though I had to changed my course and i had to walk to somewhere stupid <laughs> just so that she w- wouldn't so that i wouldn't feel like she thought that i was trying to intercept her right i'm like guilty in advance <laughs> it's in your blood You're it's guilty. nice though you guys are I, sensitive to to women feeling on alert yeah i don't i don't freak anybody out yeah no much there was one time that I followed a woman home like a woman for a few blocks from a distance because she it was nighttime and driving no this was in new york walking i was trying to protect her is what it was i'll explain she had this look come to think of it maybe she was actually like a hooker or stripper or something because she looked like she had just arrived there from the midwest um like this little she was wearing a, a sundress or something and i don't know she looked so young and tiny and vulnerable and like she didn't know where she was and it, I wish I could remember. I think it was like in the 30s on the west side or something. But it, was, it wasn't It was a bad neighborhood, but it wasn't the best neighborhood. And it was kind of desolate. And she was all like walking in heels. That's why I'm saying like actually maybe there was something up. I don't think there really was though. So we, we both happened to be going the same direction. So I – but I made sure to keep her in sight for like oh, – for a while just because I felt like if anything happens to her, then I'm here. But like I don't know what I was going to do, but I felt like there was safety – I felt like there was safety in numbers, but not so much that I actually want to her to realize how close I am. It would have been funny if she turned around and pepper sprayed you. <laughs> I know. Took, took Why your, are you following me? Took your purse. <laughs> or maybe it was a police thing. And so she yeah. was she was this very obvious mark. Right. And then she was like on her little walkie-talkie going – She's following me. She's following me. I can't get mugged if she's following me. You don't get that too much in LA. No. Because if you're actually walking, you are being followed. (laughs) Marv Earthling says, just me or everyone. Uh, Oh, wait, no, sorry. I went ahead. B. Slammon says, I feel confident that for most people, eating a scoop of peanut butter burns more calories than sex. Um, How about if you do both? You're right. 
crunchy. <laughs> you know, I'm not a big peanut butter person, I have to say. I remember Natalie Del Conte, a guest on my show years ago, she said that her favorite dessert was a spoonful of peanut butter. And I thought, what is wrong with you? How can that be someone's favorite dessert? So I've never understood the peanut butter thing. However, and I, I talk about this on the show, my husband and I are trying to get pregnant so um, he he has no uterus, so he's having a hell of a time. <laughs> yeah, are we doing it wrong? I don't know. Uh, so we're going to be doing i or we're doing IVF and all the fertility stuff, and they put me on estrogen for a while. I actually just went off of it, but during the time I was on estrogen, all of a sudden I realized what it is that people like about peanut butter, and I think it's it's a weird hormonal thing. But now that I'm off of it, I'm like, yeah, I don't like peanut butter anymore. What happened? Do you like it all of a sudden? I, I went through a few weeks where I liked it, but now I'm back to myself Is and I don't texture? like it. I All of a sudden, it like I noticed more complexity in the flavor and I was like, oh, mm. I actually really like it. How about Reese's Pieces or anything? That I like. Yeah. Yeah. The, the candy peanut butter I like. Although a peanut butter cookie I don't like. Where are you guys with peanut butter? I, oh, I like it. I like peanut butter a lot. Um, but... and. And chocolate peanut butter, forget about it. I'm there. Mm-hmm. That's that's my jam. I think that's the best thing ever. So uh, chocolate peanut butter ice cream, frozen Reese's peanut butter cups, love it. Um, but I've actually been trying to not eat peanut butter recently because it's gotten into my head that it's not good for you and that it's like... It's extremely fattening. Yeah. I always felt, I felt like it was good that I didn't like it. Well, th- there's another thing too that it's... You know that it's it's this kind of lesser food and that we just kind of make peanut butter out of it because it's cheap and it's not really oh, a nut. It's a legume and it's just garbage food or whatever. But And so I started eating um, like the different kinds of butters. Like sesame. almond butter. Um, yeah. I like almond butter. Yeah. And they're they're pretty good. I and I was I like, like oh, these are pretty good. And then the other day I just got a jar of peanut butter and I had some of that. And I was like, man, but this is so much better. <laughs> can can I ask you a question? What, what does sex have to do with this again? I forgot that. Oh, yeah, it I was. Just, I was going to ask. She said, that. I feel... Confident that for most people, eating a scoop of peanut butter burns more calories than sex. I think the idea being, yeah, yes, being that it's tough to eat like a whole scoop of peanut butter. There's so much like, I just make gross mouth sounds. Not that good at it. At which one are we talking about? It doesn't matter. (laughs) Yeah, it doesn't sound like she's burning a lot of calories having sex. (laughs) No, it doesn't. (laughs) Some (laughs) she might be foaming. She's not. She's not a friend, is she? A fr- oh, she's a she's a huge fan of the show. Oh, oh I love she's her. Great. <laughs> she's awesome. Thank you for writing. Oh, there goes another <laughs> another ticket for the movie. <laughs> Damn it! No, no, she's such a good fan of the show and has a sense of humor. And I feel like she'll go out and see the movie just because she likes the show and she'll like you. You know, there's a lot of peanut butter in my show. <laughs> there is totally, totally lots of peanut butter jokes. Uh, the peanut butter wrecking crew. <laughs> Something that Cactus says, feel frustrated at how difficult it is to watch a movie or even TV show now without dicking around on my iPhone or iPad. Yes, I always I have my phone with me when I'm watching. I mean, not in the theater. Actually, that's the benefit of going to the theater is that you actually are forced to pay attention. But I'm really bad at that. In fact, Daniel will often just say, do you want me to pause it? And I'll say, yes, please. I think it's the worst thing. These iPhones are the worst thing. Is, I mean, it's going to... It's the death of our society. I really believe it. I did a, a, a drop. I had to speak recently at a how to break into the business at a in Wichita or something. And I started the class. I said, "Here, everybody, take your phone and put it in a bucket right now." And I gave them a bucket. They looked at me like I was insane. I hate them. <laughs> I don't know how anybody teaches a class or anything anymore. It's just got to be impossible. Are they allowed to have phones in I class? Would, yes. 
I I assume so. I we I did a, a guest speaker the other day at Loyola Marymount. And it was like, and it was like, there's a guy in the back texting. texting. Yeah, it's the rudest thing in the world. I, I it's extraordinary to me. I wonder in high school how they deal with it. I mean, and the, grade the, school and stuff. Yeah, those are smaller classrooms, so I guess right. it's a little bit easier this to manage. But this was like twelve people. I think asking kids to turn their phones off for a class or not pay attention for more than two minutes is probably considered insanity. Now. <laughs> but you know, it's one movie that you'll never pick up your phone during hmm. the Wrecking, Wrecking Crew. Crew. Of course, good call. Uh, I'm like, what? tell me, out on, out on Blu-ray, DVD, June 16th. Uh, <laughs> iTunes. That's right. And iTunes. Marv Earthling says, "Just me or everyone? Wonder if people who are equally proficient in multiple languages think in one main main language. I always wonder that. Yeah." That's like one of my first questions. So that's in everyone. Everyone wonders that. Yeah. I don't actually know the answer, though. I feel like when I've asked, they say it's like a mix of them. Yeah. I asked that recently. Same thing. It's a French lady. And she said, because she still dreams in French. Really? Yeah. But she doesn't, you know, she still thinks in English now, you know, because she's been here so long. Je ne sais pas. Je suis un grand pamplemousse. Okay. <laughs> you said, I don't. I don't know. I'm a giant grapefruit. We. Oui. <laughs> Is that what you said? Say magnifique. Yeah. We. Oui, wow. He did. Yes. Well si. played. Thank you. Merci. Uh, Tracy Sharman says the sound of angry birds at a restaurant or in the airport or in a doctor's waiting room drives me batty. Just me or everyone. Yes. What I don't understand is, if I'm in public, I silence my phone. However... I thought she was actually talking that's about... What I was oh, oh, that's, oh. It, that's where I was going with this. I've seen birds Sorry. inside an airport, so that's yeah, what I thought. But. No, no. Those wow. are usually freaked out birds. She means the game, Angry Birds. Oh. oh, yeah. Yes, I don't... Aforementioned fertility clinic. No one silences their phone there. It's weird. All the women just sit there with their phone not silenced. Well, what I don't about, understand yeah, but it. What about your husband who's in the other room? Given a deposit, has he got his phone working? <laughs> I mean, you know, I actually asked him. There's magazines in there, and I was like, "Why don't?" Oh, oh no, there's a computer as well—a computer with porn sites on oh, it. See, in the little... Oh, right, I, right, I'd be right, touching now, that computer. Here we go. Right, he doesn't want to touch anything. All right, you want me to share? Yes, please. All right, let's go back. 1984. Mm-hmm. I had. This is not for my family, but. I had testicular cancer, so oh, I lost wow. it, right? So just before radiation, they tell me, that now that, again, this is 1984, so you got to go into the, you know, before you have radiation, you got to go do, uh, put sperm in the bank. So, okay, now it's like, oh, God, what do so I do? So you show up at Wells Fargo. Well, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> Hand in, <laughs> fist ready to go. So I go, okay, well, let's see, what do we do? Um, I'm in, I'm in, I call. I said, well, can I just bring it to you? You know, they, I don't know what to, you know, they said, well, if you do, and they give me all these rules and they right. say, but you got to get there before 45 minutes. Da, 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 da. I thought, oh, that's, I'm in Northridge and this is Century City. I might kill my, you know, kill off the sperm before I get there. So I go, okay. <laughs> so do it I, on the drive there. Yeah. That, yeah. Multitask. <laughs> exactly. So I get there and I have a briefcase with me. You know, I'm like 23. Like, why am I carrying a briefcase? Because I got <laughs> and, the good stuff. And the nurse said, and the nurses. How much sperm did you bring? <laughs> <laughs> She's like, half an ounce is fine, really. <laughs> so she this she goes, okay, it's, uh, you use the bathroom, and I'm thinking, there's it's just a bathroom. It's like you're the third bathroom in a house, really small. That was mm-hmm. it. So I bring my briefcase in, I do my stuff, and now now the big question is, when do you leave? 
do you leave now? Oh, right. It's too early. You've just <laughs> been there for maybe two minutes. Maybe you want to stretch Yeah, it the out. respectable time. And, well, yeah, you want, you know. So finally, whatever happens, you can kind of do this. This goes on for like weeks, you know, trying to deposit, trying to get stuff in there. And then third time and fourth time, and she goes, um, I said, there's no cups. She goes, oh, the cups are in the in the drawer. And she goes, okay. And I go in there. I was like, there was all kinds of pornography. They should have told you that <laughs> exactly. right away. They should do that. I mean, now they have computers. That's crazy Computers stuff. and magazines, yeah. But I feel like they should – someone someone dropped the ball. Well. No pun. Um, they really should have told you that Drop the there. ball. That's – thanks. Really sensitive. <laughs> really Thank you very sorry. much. Sure. Um, but in the end, um, I did end up having a date out of it. I dated the nurse. Wow. <laughs> yeah. Wow. She's special. She was a nice girl. So – no, seriously. She, she, was must, nice. she must have her pick of the litter. She gets to see yes. all the guys coming in all I day. I know. Yeah, no, it was she, she, But that makes for a funny conversation. Yeah. Yes. But I wait. I waited till the last visit. I wasn't going to blow it, you know. So yeah. is is that how you have your kids then? With the nurse? No. No, 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 no. <laughs> With the... Because you no, froze... Did, did you freeze your sperm? Yeah, it didn't work. Oh. You know, and that was this thing that you learned is like, that was early days too. Right. And then they tried ICSI and all that stuff. ICSI, yeah, that's where they. That's what we're gonna have to do. Is where yeah. they inject one sperm into an egg. Yeah, and it's. I mean, the technology is crazy. Yeah. I mean, the technology, whatever science you want to call it. Right. But, I mean, listen. I'm, I'm. Thank God the science is there because we have two wonderful children. So you tried to freeze. So the frozen sperm didn't. It no, didn't, just didn't work. Yeah. So you know, it's what it is, but. Um, no, I have two beautiful children, but uh, you aren't going to the Octomom's doctor, are you? No. <laughs> no, that must have been crazy uh, and scary, having testicular cancer. Um, at the time, it was weird because, you know what, back to my father again, that was weird because I always remember being in the hospital and your parents coming to, you know, just freaked. Mm -hmm. And I still remember he had just done this movie called The River and he had... That day he was working on it. Like after I was in recovery for a couple of days, and that day, it was a piece called "Growing Up." Is on the piece on the piece of music. It was John Williams wrote it, and he said I could not play that. All he said we had to take a break. He could not pull himself together, Aww. and he came back later and he said and he did it. But it was so emotional. It was a basket case that day, and it just it's weird how that happened. But yeah. I still remember. Yeah, cool. The hardest part with you know, with cancer is, you know, I've done it again. Years, 30 years later, I got something else up here. Mm. That, again, that cancer thing is that, that you know, to give that notice to you and go, oh, you know. But now it's, you know, a lot of it, you just keep living with it. Mm. Downer. Wait, what do you mean they give that notice to you? Well, you know, you, you get you get like, hey, you got cancer. Okay, is it terminal? Is it, you know, they give you stages. Like, I don't want right. to, you know. Right, to live with, with that specter. Well, it's always in your head. Yeah. You know, I'm a cancer. Someone said, I'm a cancer survivor or something. Like, well, you're always living with that, that thing, that shadow over you. But... Right, right. So the, the thing that you have up here, you point to your neck? Yeah. I had, um, well, I want to say it was a lump in the, it was a lump in the, in the what do you call it, carcinoma, whatever it was. But uh, it felt like the size of a testicle. I thought it grew back. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Tracy Sharman. Oh, no. I already did that one. Oh, this last one. Zach Mercer says, we'll eat chips out of a small bowl instead of eating from the bag to feel like less of a fat ass. 
Um, um, nope. <laughs> no. It's smart though. Portions it, are smart. You know what? I've, I've tried that and every time I try it, I just keep refilling the bowl. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. But it makes me feel a little classier. You know, I'm the thing I'm the worst at that with, worst, worst with at that, and I don't even eat it anymore. It's been years of cereal. Because cereal, you can just keep refilling. Like, uh, oh, yeah, yeah. now the milk to cereal ratio is off. I need you're to add right, milk. I right. need to add cereal. I need to yeah. add milk. I need, yeah. That's a good point. But if I ever just decided, fuck it, I would go to town with cereal and with, like, I've said before, I want to be buried in a bread basket. <laughs> bread and butter. That's. That's my jam. <laughs> that could be your, the death it's, of you. That's so bad for you. There's no one who signs off on bread and butter anymore. Yeah, there's no secret bread and butter diet. No. I wish there were. Oh, God. Someone needs to come up with that. The bread yeah. and butter diet. Used to be. The opposite was, of Atkins. Yeah, exactly. No, Atkins. Oh, that's Atkins right. It was no the opposite. Carb. Oh, well, was well, on Atkins, you can have as much butter as you want. But it's like, what do you put it on? And bacon. A steak? Yeah. Mm. <laughs> Ch- chicken? Ah, oh, all this talk is making me wish I could seamless segue. <laughs> After all this, I feel like I need a trip to Vegas. I don't know about you guys. Definitely. The thing is, though, if you're going to go to Las Vegas, you want an amazing deal. I do. You don't want to be that person that paid way too much for not that much fun when you could have the best time ever and pay not that much. And you know how you can do that? How do I do that? Well, you go to Vegas.com, of course, because everyone at Vegas.com lives in Vegas, works in Vegas, plays in Vegas. So they know the best way to get you the best deals, the insider deals. Uh, And the thing is, they have a proprietary drop watch tool. So it continues to monitor the price even after you book, and it notifies you of changes to ensure you get the best deal. So you get a best price guarantee even after you paid. So you don't do that thing where you go back and you're like, oh, great, now it's cheaper. Oh, buyer's remorse. You don't have that. I don't want that. Don't don't have it. Take with, it back. You there will, there will be none of it. I like it. <laughs> with Vegas.com. And they don't just offer you the best rates on hotels. They offer you the best rates on headliner shows, tours, attractions, VIP bottle service at top clubs. So go to Vegas.com right now. Click on the microphone in the top right corner and enter my code best friend to receive an extra 10% off everything but air hotel packages. That's Vegas.com. Click on the microphone and get your bonus savings by using my secret code best friend book today. Well, Denny Tedesco, this has been delightful having this you on the fun. show. Thank spilled, you so much. I spilled all the guts out. That's right. I, I'm probably the best interviewer that you've ever dealt with, right? I spit on the others. Thank you. Spit on them. Thank you. Letterman has nothing, to, all of them, nothing on you. I mean, that is what I believe, but it's like it's no, nice it's when it's confirmed by other people. If Cronkite was here. <laughs> Blow him out of the water. <laughs> um, Thank you so much for that. I appreciate it. You can follow me on Twitter at Allison Rosen. Follow the show's Twitter feed at A-R-I-Y-M-B-F. Don't worry. We'll come around and we'll get all your plugs in too. Um, but <laughs> Why? Did you, my eyes light up? <laughs> no, you didn't. I just I, Sometimes when I start to like wrap up the show, I feel like the guest might be like, but wait, I have things to say. Yeah. No, keep going. We have a ringtone available. Hey, 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 go fuck yourself. You can get that by searching, hey, go fuck yourself on your iPhone in the iTunes store. A lot of people with this ringtone tell me it's life-changing. They're very happy they have it. And fun things can happen like, you know, your phone will ring and you might get fired. But someone else might be like, hey, are you a fan of the Alice Rose Rose's New Best Friend show? I'm just kidding. I want to double your salary. Yeah. <laughs> no, people have said that like 
that it's not the best for work. Um, I think you just work at the wrong place then. Exactly. Yeah. Problem solves itself. But really, before I de- derailed what I was trying to say, the point I was making, though, is that it's a way that you can let people know and people will know that you're a fan of the Alice Rose's New Best Friend Show. Also, we have two special bonus episodes available recorded live at the LA Podcast Festival. First one with Doug Benson and Greg Proops. Next one with Doug Benson, musician Matt Costa, and the former Thursday Gang. And those are $1.99 in the comedy album section of the iTunes store. Get those by searching Alice and Rosen in iTunes and that will pull them up. Um, did I already say you can follow me on Twitter at Allison Rosen? I think I did. And You can always say it You again. can never say that. At Allison Rosen, show's Twitter feed at A-R-I-Y-M-B-F. Email us, A-R-I-Y-M-B-F-Show at gmail.com. If you're going to buy something on Amazon, which you are, because they have everything, click through the banner on my website, AllisonRosen.com. It doesn't cost you anything extra. It helps out the show so much. Thank you for all your Amazon support. Thank you for your PayPal support. There's PayPal links on the right side of the site, AllisonRosen.com. Jeff, where should everyone go for you? You can follow me at Colonel Jeff Fox on Twitter, Facebook, and the Instagram. And my show, Barracuda Radio, has a new episode out. You can get that on iTunes. All right. Very so, nice. Denny Tedesco, tell everyone everything they need to know. Uh, WreckingCrewFilm.com. That is the website. You can buy merch there. You can buy uh, the, or you can order the LP and soundtrack, which is actually four CDs. And there's a new book called Sound Explosion, which is a tabletop book that we have out now. Nice. And uh, Facebook page is always uh, Wrecking Crew Film. And that's where we have trivia every day. So we're having fun. That is super fun. I tweet, but I don't know how um, my Twitter is rec- Wrecking Crew Film, I think it is. Okay. You'll we'll find look it, it right? You'll let me know. Yes. Okay. <laughs> All right. Now that the show's over, that means it's time to get free snacks at your door from Nature Box with, with over 100 options to choose from. Get the bold flavors you crave and feel smarter about snacking. Go to naturebox.com slash Allison to start your free trial. That's naturebox.com slash Allison. All right, you guys, thank you so much for listening. I love you. Goodbye. Hey, do you know about the Allison Rosen Show? 